Um, so I just really, I just was so touched by the worship. And, I, and uh, I was aware of you, Olivia, but I was aware of your comrades as well. And some of them aren't here uh, today, but you have a company of friends in Christ. And, and so this word is for you, but it's for the group as well. And um, so I felt like I heard God's heart. Always makes me cry when I when I hear the Lord. So here's what I felt the Lord was saying about my gratitude. When you give a gratitude to God and say, Lord, what did you think about that? That's a great question. Lord, what do you feel about my gratitude? How does it make you feel? And it, and and there's a there's a wonderful principle of the kingdom. Uh, I call it the, the the divine dance. And it's, it begins with divine initiative. And this is what grace is about. Grace is about divine initiative. And, and yet, the Bible teaches that there's a human response to divine initiative that's very important to God. Our, our response to his initiatives are very important in the kingdom. And a lot of people who have kind of gotten... Uh, overemphasized on the sovereignty of God, sometimes uh, don't emphasize enough the human response that's necessary and 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 a, a big part of the kingdom, a big part of the relationship. God, God somehow we know He's eternal, but He somehow condescends to relate to us in time and, and in real time. And so I like to say it this way: when we sing a song to God. You know, and and sing our love songs to him, or pray our prayers to him. He doesn't. He doesn't sit on his throne and say, "Oh, I knew they were going to sing that one," right? With his arms folded, like like boasting in his foreknowledge. He doesn't do that. He accepts in real time what we bring to him, and it literally moves the heart of an eternal God. A God, the Bible says, who is eternally blessed can be blessed even more than he's blessed by you and by me. We move his heart. And when his heart is moved, there's a lot of times where he can't help himself. And his hand moves. His heart is moved, and so his hand moves. And we all love to see the hand of God move. But I'll tell you the secret of getting God's hand to move is to move his heart. If we will move his heart, his hand will move. And he'll do things that only he can do and and cause us to be in awe and wonder. So here's what I felt like the Lord said in response to my gratitude for the worship that Olivia presented to us or presented to the Lord and drew us into. She adores me. To adore is to adore. To A-D-O-R-E is to A-D-O-O-R. To adore is to adore. For you, Olivia, to adore is to adore. And for us as well. She has... No idea yet 
about the doors I'm going to open to her. I think he may have a hint, some hints already, but you know, it might be not quite be right, but you have some hints, but you don't have much. You just have an anticipation. And there's a joy in the anticipation, by the way. Gratitude brings joy, but so does anticipation of joy. And you're full of anticipation. And it's very joyful. It's kind of like Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is about anticipation joy. Christmas Day is about joy joy. For getting getting the prize, getting the presents. Anyway, first there will be open doors into many hearts. Then to many groups. Then to many cities, and even to many nations. The music she composes in the secret place will be sung from the housetops and will open ancient Celtic wells of grace that have been filled in with the soils of cynicism and unbelief. And then Terry had to stop. I think that could have gone on. Sometimes you get in that flow and you're not sure what you're going to write, but the Holy Spirit allows your pen to be that of a ready writer. And all of a sudden there's more. So God's going to use you and your comrades to, to, dig, to dig these, to redig these wells that have been buried under the, the cynical culture of Western rationalism that we've all drunk from. We've all experienced the mud of Western rationalism. Western rationalism is not the kingdom worldview. And so you're going to help bring in a new view a new view of the kingdom of God through your music, and not just your music, but your poetry and beneath the music, and, and then the messages that God gives you and your comrades. Now, are you and Hannah together in yeah. Karen? Yeah. Yeah, you guys are together. I didn't know the... Hannah. Hannah, sorry. What did I say? Something else. Hannah. From the same church. From the same church, in the same group, same renewal group. So I, I, so I think that God's going to, he's going to create a, a greater symbiotic relationship between the two of you. And Hannah, right Hannah? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm in a little bit different space right now. <laughs> Hannah, you are going to be a teacher. And you're going to be a public teacher and proclaim the, your prophetic teacher. And you're going to proclaim the word of the Lord that God is going to give you. And some of your messages that God gives you are going to inspire some of your songs. And some of your songs are going to inspire some of her messages. And that's a beautiful connection, kingdom connection that the Lord is making. 
and has made. So, that was my interactive gratitude. I was like, I do think I could go home now. You know, it's like, wow, that was good food. All right, so uh, I would like you to turn to uh, Romans chapter 16. essence of the cargo that Terry and I are carrying here to Scotland has to do with a conviction that we are in on the beginnings of what you might call a second reformation. We're in on the beginnings of what you might call a second reformation. Other people have other terminology for it, and that's okay. We're not stuck on the terminology but we're hearing others echo this word back to us and the Holy Spirit seems to be saying clearly across the world uh, that there's this new era dawning some call it a kingdom era dawning upon the body of Christ by the, by the mercy of, of the Lord In Romans chapter 16, verse 25, the very last verses, which is a benediction or doxology, I want you to read it with me. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know if you have ever had this grip you before, but if you haven't, I hope that it will grip you today or grip you again, if it has before. We are recipients of a revelation of a mystery that was kept secret by God from previous generations. The generations before Christ came. The mystery of God, Ephesians talks about this as well, in depth. A mystery that has been hidden by God from previous generations was revealed in the first coming of Christ. Christ is called the Logos, where we get the word logic. Christ is the logic of God that is the integrating logic of the whole story of the Bible. The meta-narrative of the Bible. Jesus is the integrating dynamic. He's the integrating person. He's the integrating power that brings the puzzle pieces together. The prophecies of the Old Testament, when they were given, were given in parts and portions, the writer of Hebrews says it. Many different portions and many different ways God spoke through the prophets in previous generations. And they, the, Peter says the prophets themselves didn't even know what they were prophesying about. 
And, the, and Peter also says the angels didn't understand what was going on. They didn't see the meta-narrative. And, so, and, and yet the word of the Lord came through the prophets. And God was building this story through creation, through the fall, through the choosing of Abraham and making a covenant with Abraham and then building the nation of Israel and relating to Israel in a very unique way to prepare the earth for the climax of it all. And Jesus comes on the scene and he, he brings the integration of the storyline. And the story plot, the plot of the story has a really amazing twist in it that the Jews did not expect. There were a number of things about it that they didn't expect, but one of them was resurrection. Resurrection was always, it was a Jewish Concept, the Jewish thought that there would be resurrection, but it was always at the end of time. But lo and behold, the end of the story shows up in the middle of the story. And resurrection happens 2,000 years ago. Resurrection happens. And it's a, it's a twist in the plot. Like, oh, wow, what does this mean? The, the new creation was inaugurated by the first coming of Christ, not the second coming of Christ. It's called inaugurated eschatology. Jesus is the eschaton. He's the, he's the alpha you know, and omega. He's the beginning and the end. Eschaton means the end. The end showed up in the middle of the story of human history. And when the end showed up ahead of time, through, through uh, incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it changed everything. It changed the cosmos, not just the earth. It changed the heavens as well. This is so dramatic. Human history has been dramatically altered by the coming of Christ. A lot of people of the earth have, haven't figured that out because there's, there are secrets of the kingdom. There's invisible aspects of it as well as visible. And God hasn't forced salvation onto the earth, but he has warmly invited us into the salvation that he has already accomplished. Through Jesus. This, this is a mystery. It was hidden. From previous generations of people. But it is, it's now been disclosed. Through the prophetic writings. It's the prophecies of the Old Testament. That were. They were like puzzle pieces. Scattered. On a table. The Old Testament prophecies. Only there was more to it. They were on their gray side. Imagine a a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle with all the pieces laid out on the table randomly on their gray side and say, put that one together. That's the way the prophecies of the Old Testament were. But when Jesus comes, oh, and by the way, and, and not only are they scattered and on their gray side, there's no image to follow, to put them together. How difficult would that be? 
Humanly impossible, let's say. Maybe it's a 10,000-piece puzzle. Humanly impossible. But Jesus comes, and in the coming of Jesus, all the puzzle pieces get turned over on their colorful side. Okay, number one. They all get turned over on their color side. Like, whoa, there's some color here. God has come into the world in Christ. And not only are they on their colorful side, but now there's an image that we know that the puzzle pieces fit together to create. We have the box cover of the, of the, of the jigsaw puzzle. And on the cover of the box is the image that the puzzle pieces fit together to create. And guess whose picture is on the cover? It's Jesus. And so now, as New Testament believers... We have the image, and we have the pieces, and then we have the Holy Spirit who is our assistant, our aid, our helper to put it together. And we are able to piece together the prophecies of Scripture. That's what Paul's saying here. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, we get get hindsight into the Old Testament prophecies. And we understand them in a a new way, and in a way that the Jews of, of Jesus' day did not understand. They misinterpreted their own prophecies. They misunderstood their own prophecies. But Jesus comes along and gives the divine, I call it the authorized revised version. The authorized revised version of the Old Testament. A new paradigm. For instance, the Messiah would come, but he wouldn't come as a conquering military king. He would come as a suffering servant the first time. That was a paradigm shift. Another one was not only would the Messiah be human, but lo and behold, the Messiah would be God in the flesh. That was another paradigm shift. Massive paradigm shifts that Jesus brings us. And we see in, in Luke 24, we see a, an example of this, uh, this enlightenment that happens so vivid to disciples after the crucifixion, disappointed, in pain, in agony. Their hearts are broken, walking along the road to Emmaus. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, suddenly shows up incognito beside them and walks with them and plays dumb, which is so cool. This is the playful side of God. He, 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 he loves to draw us out through games, if you will. This is, it's like a game. He's playing with them. And he's walking along suddenly with them. And he says, what are you all talking about? What are we talking about? Haven't you heard? We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. We thought he would be the great prophet. And that he would bring the salvation of God to Israel. And they killed him. He's dead. 
And Jesus doesn't interrupt their conversation. He just lets them have it. You know, it's so beautiful, isn't it? It's so, it's so inviting. It's so warm. Human. He enters into the humanity, the agony of their human hearts and their brokenness. It doesn't immediately address it. it. Just lets it be. Until he walks away with them. And they come to a place to have food. He takes the bread and breaks it. And immediately, their eyes are open and they recognize it's the Lord. I know stories of the Lord showing up in disguise in people's lives. It it continues to happen from time to time in the world. Maybe it'll happen to you someday. Same thing with angels. It says that sometimes we entertain angels unaware in Hebrews 13. Anyway, well, what happened on the road besides the fact that Jesus didn't reveal himself until he broke the bread at the meal and and then disappears, by the way, like he's poof, gone. (laughs) It's very interesting. The capacities of the resurrected body on display to change form and to disappear from the visible world. Well, anyway, what did happen on that road, though, was that he explained the scriptures to them. And beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he opened their minds to understand the prophecies. He put the puzzle together for them. And then later, when they were testifying to their friends about what had happened on the road to Emmaus, how the Lord, the resurrected Lord, came to them, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he explained the scriptures to us? And how they all pointed to him. So this is a New Testament lens for understanding the Old Testament. And this is a very, very important point for theology. A lot of Christians don't understand this, unfortunately. They've been, they've been taught the Bible in pieces rather than as a narrative. We need to understand the Bible as a divine narrative. Because we will misunderstand the prophecies of both the Old Testament and the New Testament if we don't get the bigger story. We don't learn the Bible as a story. This is one of the downsides of systematic theology. It's it's in pieces rather than biblical theology, which is the storyline. God is a master storyteller. All of the stories that have moved your heart through the years, think about the movies or the books, every story that's moved your heart is just a little, it's a little parable of a part of the big story. And that's why it moves you so much. It moves you to tears when you see the hero or you see the villain or you see the clash or you know you see the solution that comes i want you to feel this doxology and and put in your notes ephesians chapter 1 
and Ephesians chapter 3 because these are parallel to this. Do you know, do you know you've fallen into a story? Sam said that, that to Frodo. What kind of story have we fallen into, Mr. Frodo? You've fallen into a story. And what previous generations of human beings didn't understand and know, you have, you have a revelation of that. You have been, you, there's a fellow, Paul calls it the fellowship of the mystery. We're in a fellowship of a mystery. A mystery revealed. I pray today that we will feel that wonderful mystery and that, and that we will see it unfold in a fresh way to us. I want to um, give you a little overview of this uh, basic thing that Terry and I are carrying from the Lord. Give, been downloading it to us for 40 years. That's how long we've been married. It's how long we've been in ministry. And um, I, I look back and I realize it was kind of like in pieces for me up until the last few years, and then it's coalesced. And we're we're born for we were born for this hour. The Lord said to me, "Is it okay, Michael, if the first forty years were all preparatory?" Is it okay with you? And I said to him, yes, Lord. It's okay. Because we've been in preparation, even though we've been in active ministry for that many years, it hasn't been our scene. Our scene didn't appear until now. And now is our time. It's our scene now. As the Second Reformation has been inaugurated around 2012. The second reformation begins with the first reformation. And this is a review for some of you that were there yesterday. I'll do it quickly. The first reformation, 500 years ago, right? Many people noted that God often will move in these 500-year cycles. I'm not a historian, so I can't help with that. But, but I know that this 500 years is very significant. The first reformation was desperately needed. The First Reformation was not prophesied in the Bible, by the way. But we look back on history, and we see how desperately it was needed, right? Christendom was kind of confined to Europe, and it was a kind of Christendom that was very legalistic and trapped in rituals that were not life-giving, and people didn't know how to be saved. That apostolic truth of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ had been buried beneath the rubble of religion, man-made religion. And so 500 years ago, God in his grace started to raise up these reformers from within the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. Raised them up to recover this lost truth that's so central and so vital, so fundamental and foundational that we're saved not by works, but we're saved by grace through faith. That was the, that was the cry of the First Reformation. That was the 
primary message of the First Reformation. The printing press got invented, and you know, some it just is an amazing thing that's happened in the last few, just few, five hundred years in the world. This truth of salvation by grace through faith has now been broadcast. It has now been proliferated. It has now spread to the world. Just think about that. I wonder if. I wonder if there were prophets 500 years ago who said, in the next 500 years, this message, I wonder if there were some Scottish prophets that prophesied, this message will go to the ends of the earth and it will affect millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people from every continent, from every nation. Oh, it's going to be amazing. And I wonder what the Christians around those prophets would have thought of them had they prophesied that. Really? Isn't that a little extravagant? I see it. I have a feeling it happened. I've never read about any of those prophets, but I bet that there were some. And now, 500 years later, look around the world. What's happened? The largest Christian nation in the world, China, has the most Christians in it. Isn't that amazing? I mean, in the 60s, they threw the, the pastors in prison and destroyed the Bibles in the 60s, our lifetime, for many of us. And very few Christians. And now, look what happened. Throw away the Bible and throw away the pastors. And revival comes. <laughs> through women, primarily who didn't go to prison, who memorized the Bible, who started to gather people in their homes and tell the Bible stories and teach. And then God started to heal the sick through their prayers. And a visitation comes to China over the last 30 years. And now there's multiplied millions of Christians in China. That's, that's like a a little game God played with the world, don't you think? The second reformation is not prophesied in the Bible, just like the first reformation was not prophesied. We have to, we have to look back on 500 years ago and say how desperately it was needed. Right? It was desperately needed because the apostolic Christianity had been buried beneath the rubble. And God raised up the reformers to help start to, you know, recover this apostolic kind of Christianity. And it began with the apostolic teaching that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That was the, that was the message along with things like the priesthood of all believers. How wonderful that these things were Regained and the, and now the traction that, that, that those messages have gotten and spread around the world and now people know how to be saved. The Lord showed it to me this way. 500 years ago, there was a terrible battle in the heavens. The demons and the angels were clashing big time. 500 years ago, over this issue of the nature of personal salvation. And the Holy Spirit won that battle in human history. And the, and the ripple effects are obvious across the globe. 
Isn't that cool? Way to go, Holy Spirit. You won that battle. We, the, the, the first Reformation was not prophesied by the Bible, but the, the first Reformation was desperately needed. And now here we are in our, in our generation. And the Bible doesn't prophesy a second Reformation. It's not, it's not a Bible prophecy we can turn to. But the Holy Spirit is saying, There's a desperate need for a second reformation. And it's not a repeat of the first. Because that first, that first battle has been won. Now it's time to build upon that victory. The second reformation also involves a very powerful battle that's going on. It's raging right now. So I want to pull pull back the curtains. For you and prophesy to you. Pull back the curtains. There's a terrible battle going on again, like there was 500 years ago, not over the nature of personal salvation. That one's settled. It's over the bigger and better nature of God. It's a battle over the bigger and better nature of God because we have had. In our theologies, our systems of theologies, we have not seen enough of who God is. We know some things about Him. We certainly know He's the God who saves us by grace through faith through the finished work of Jesus Christ, but there are things that are askew in our view of God. We've gotten the wrong impressions about him that he wants to rectify and change. The battle is over the bigger and better nature of God. God is bigger than we think he is and he's better than we think he is. So our friend Bill Johnson, who we've interacted with about these things, has picked this up and his latest book is, a, is about the goodness of God. Most Christians don't understand how good God is. And this keeps us from trusting Him the way we need to trust Him. You can't trust someone that you don't believe in the depths of your being is good. And there are, there's a lot of doubt about the absolute goodness of God in the church world and in the world in general. And this is the battle that's raging right now. God is good. Yes, there is evil, but God is good. And when evil becomes magnified, then our, our view of the goodness of God diminishes. We have to keep it in perspective, and this is where the hermeneutical error is. It's in our view of God and our view of evil. Evil is real, but it's just a, it's a little dark dot in contrast to his absolute giant, majestic perfection. And he has, he has no problem and will have no problem totally eradicating the evil. In his way and in his time. 
But what are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on the majesty of God and his, and his greatness and the greatness of his son in mitigating, in mitigating the problem of evil in the world? He's already mitigated it. He's already judged the evil one. He said, in his first covenant, it's already been judged. It's already been determined. But we get too overwhelmed by the darkness. Don't be overwhelmed by the darkness. The darkness can't can't put out the light. The darkness is no match for the light. But the light is much bigger and brighter than we've known. God is good. When I say that God is good, here's what I mean. He is really good. I mean really. He's really good. Brothers and sisters, he's really good. And the Lord has said to me how much accusation he gets every day by the people in the world. It grieves his heart because he wants the world to know how good he is, how trustworthy he is. But we haven't resolved, we haven't resolved the dilemma down deep inside. And this is what the Second Reformation is, how it begins. It's by resolving that dilemma. The Holy Spirit is on the scene to resolve that dilemma. And to reveal to us again how good our Father is. In Him is light, John said, and there is no darkness in Him at all. There is darkness in the world, but in God there is no darkness at all. Even though he's allowed the the darkness in the world. It's because he's vulnerable. The almighty God is vulnerable. By choice. To woo us to himself. To not overpower us with his presence. But to invite us into a relationship. And so he made himself vulnerable. If, if, If that's not true then just think for a moment about the incarnation of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus. This proves that God is vulnerable. And vulnerability is the key to life. It's the key to relationships. And so much of what we've been taught is about defending ourselves in subtle and uh, and overt ways, instead of teaching each other how to be vulnerable. This is what Terry and I have been learning about vulnerability, Christ-like vulnerability. This is what the world needs. I I don't know of any one truth about God that is more compelling than the fact that the almighty, all-powerful, everywhere present, all-knowing God is humble in nature. We've heard many sermons about God's majesty, many sermons about his immutability, many sermons about his omnipotence, right? But how many sermons have we heard about God's humility? If there's anybody in the universe that didn't need to be humble, it was God. But he is. 
And he, he is because he loves his creation. And he wants his creation to want him. God doesn't need anything. The, the theologians teach us this. He's, he's self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. doesn't need anything. But God wants many things. And this is what the theologians haven't said enough to us. God wants many things. And he especially wants to be wanted by us. Acts chapter 17 teaches this very clearly. When Paul's talking to the Athenian philosophers, who we would just write off in their arrogant, in their arrogant philosophy, but Paul didn't. He found common ground with them and wooed them to believe in the God that they even wrote about in their own poetry. He quotes their own poetry and applies it to the God of Israel. So him to Zeus, and he takes it and he baptizes it, and he applies it to the God of Israel. It's amazing. And in that passage, he says God's been playing hide-and-seek. I'll paraphrase it. God plays hide-and-seek with humanity. He, he allowed all the nations to have their ups and their downs and their boundaries and their ins and their outs for one primary purpose, that human beings might seek God. One primary that they might seek God in the hope that they would grope for him. You know, God has a hope in his heart that people will grope for him. Have you ever groped for God? He has a hope that they would grope for him and what? Find him. To grope for him and find him. God plays hide and seek with humanity, but it's the game that he loves to lose. Just like parents love to lose the game. For their little ones. So this is the first part of the Second Reformation. I said I was going to say it quickly, but I didn't, did I? It's because my tears came. I'll take a break here in a minute. The first part of the Second Reformation is a healed and expanded view of God. A healed and expanded view of God. He's, he's, he's breaking out of the boxes that our theologies have put in. So let's be very careful about these things. I'll tell you, as a young, zealous Bible teacher and Bible lover, There have been many, many, many times when I've taken a Bible principle and applied it into a situation only to have the Holy Spirit say to me, that's not how I feel about it. It's been embarrassing at times, humiliating at times to to miss the Lord because I, I puffed up a principle that wasn't properly applied. We're not called to principled living. It's not wrong to be principled, but it's not our ultimate context for life. We have to be led by the Holy Spirit who applies the principles in his way under his leadership. This is the big dealing of God in my life as a church leader. Okay. 
first part of the Second Reformation is a healed and expanded view of God, which also heals and expands our view of us. Because we have missed, or we have underestimated the power of the new creation within us. We've missed, we've underestimated who we are, our identity, our basic identity. We've misunderstood and we've minimized radical change that has happened in our human nature when Jesus came in as Lord and changed us. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a new nature. He gave you a new spirit. And your battle with the flesh is not what many Christians think it is. It's not a battle between two equals. It's a battle between one who is highly superior to your flesh. Paul said it this way, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say, don't walk in the flesh and you will walk in the spirit. He said, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And there's a big teaching that needs to be you know, retaught to Christians about the nature of the flesh because it's not your nature anymore. You have a new nature. And you don't have two, by the way. You just have one nature, and it's new. The second part of the Second Reformation is a wedding between Ephesians 2.89 with Ephesians 2.10. Doesn't that sound reasonable? Like, shouldn't we put verse 10 into the picture of, of, of uh, Ephesians 2.89? For we are saved, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works, it's not of yourself, it's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. That's the essence of the First Reformation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But let's read verse 10. For, there's a conjunction, there's supposed to be a wedding. For, we are what? His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Ironically, for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. So our faith works its way out into the visible world and we begin to partner with God. We are partners with God in accomplishing these works that he has preordained for us to accomplish that bring reformation and transformation to cities and nations and to our cultures, to our neighborhoods, to our families, to our businesses. It's very practical. Good works that that are applied that speak of the grace of God, that speak of the presence of Christ. And God is going to raise up and I'll, I'll end with this, and we'll take a break. God is going to raise up 50 million hope reformers. And you are part of that company of people. Because you wouldn't be here if you weren't. And I wouldn't be here if you weren't. That's how I know. From what thing, the things the Lord has told me. So I know who you are. You are hope reformers. You are part of this second reformation. 
that's going to have a healed and expanded view of God, a healed and expanded view of who you are in God, a different view of trials, and a different view of the earth. Because our theologies have been messed up with an anti-earth mentality and attitude. We've had an earth-to-heaven theology, but the Second Reformation is a heaven-to-earth theology. And one among you has articulated this like no other, and his name, he lives in St. Andrews, his name is N.T. Wright. And he's a prophet to the world. And people are starting to listen to him. In America, for sure. He's a, he used to be an Anglican. Do you stay a bishop in, in Anglican Church after you stop being a bishop? He's still a bishop then. He was the bishop of Durham for a long, long time. Now he's in St. Andrews as an educator. And he writes volumes. Listen to him. And you'll understand the Second Reformation. And here, here's how it's going to happen. 50 million hope reformers, people just like you and me, people like Olivia. She's just a songwriter and a worship leader. She's just doing, she's just being herself. She's being who she is. And, but what happens is that she ushers. She's not, the, the, the hope reformers are ushers. Okay, so we're ordaining ushers today. You're ushers. And what do you ush? Here's what you ush. You ush the presence of Jesus into your sphere of influence. And you, you bring his presence with you. Stephen, you bring his presence with you into Rolls Royce. And when you consult that company and go to your office down in England, you you usher the presence of Jesus into the office. And you bring the wisdom of Christ to bear in a new way upon your sphere of influence. And the people around us are going to start to say, what is that? It happens with Terry and her life coach, and she's a life coach. Non-Christians come into her space, and they sit with her, and they go, what is this? What is this? And they start to cry a lot of times. Why am I crying? Strong men sit with her. They start crying. What is this? It's Jesus. He wants you. He's here for you. And then we, we bring a new kind of wisdom to bear that brings solutions to problems. So when Stephen goes into his office at Rolls-Royce as a consultant, he's not going to have a revival meeting get everybody slain in the spirit of the office. It's the translation of this power we know in our church experience that gets translated into God's going to give him revelation about solutions for scientific matters to help mitigate the problem of nuclear waste. And God's going to glorify his name through his work. And ultimately, God's going to give the glory for that kind of solution, that brilliance. See, this is how it happens. Some of the songs that you'll write won't be worship songs. Some of them will be songs for the human heart. 
And it'll touch the human heart. And they'll go, who was that songwriter? Olivia. What else has she written? What else has she composed? I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that recording. And it's all about Jesus. Whoa. Surprise. It's one of them Christians. One of those hope reformers. Lord, we pray that you would just bless our break now. It's long in coming. Help us to enjoy it. Amen. So another um, part of the cargo that Terry and I are bringing uh, to this conversation has to do with John 14 through 17. So embedded in John 14 through 17 are elements of the Second Reformation. I believe that there are astounding promises in these chapters in the Upper Room Discourse that Christ has an intimate conversation with the eleven, because Judas has already left their company, and he's having this intimate conversation before they are commissioned to go and do their apostolic work. And we're talking today about mission and apostolic mission and prophetic activity and how they integrate with each other, how they fuel each other. And we see this uh, here in these chapters in a very significant way. And the Lord, I mentioned yesterday how the Lord drew my attention and has drawn our attention to the Gospel of John and to this part of the Gospel of John. Theologians call it the Holy of Holies of John. And I believe that there are astounding, astounding promises that have gone over our heads. And it's because our hindsight, ironically, has blinded us. It's because we know the story. We, we've read the book of Acts. And we just kind of gloss over it. And we don't take it personally like we need to. And we also have had disappointments with God in our prayers. And so we, we hear things that Jesus says. But we're not sure what they mean. Ask whatever you desire. And I will do it, for instance. Ask whatever you desire. Ask in my name for whatever you desire and I will do it. This happens five times in these chapters that Jesus draws our attention to this kind of prayer that's so effective, but we haven't necessarily experienced it ourselves. And so we don't have a hook for it. We don't know what what we can hang on that. But I'll tell you, in these coming days, we're going to understand this. This is part of the the, uh, treasury of the greater inheritance that the Second Reformation is going to bring us into. And the analogy is the children of Israel, they wandered in the wilderness. God was with them. They'd been baptized in the water and the sea. The presence of God was there. But they were like little children being taken care of by God in immaturity as a nation. And But God wanted them to cross over into a promised land. And that was called their inheritance. And the picture is not of heaven, Uh, crossing over into heaven because there's giants in that land and there's fortified cities and there's battles to fight. That's not heaven. That's a greater inheritance in this age. That's the analogy that God has called us into, that he wants us to become sons and daughters, not just little children, sons and daughters who work with him, who walk with him, who help settle the land and bring restoration and reformation to the land itself. This This is a part of the second reformation. And um, so John 14 through 17 is this conversation before the commissioning. And you and I in our churches 
and our the people we disciple and lead and mentor. We need to have we need to have this conversation with Jesus in order to get prepared for our commission. And this is what I fear too much, too often in our discipling and in our church cultures. We we glossed over, we passed by this conversation and hurry up and get people commissioned to go and win the world for Christ. But they're not ready to win the world for Christ. They're not carrying the right cargo yet. And so we have to go back and we have to understand more profoundly what it means to abide in Christ. I mentioned the dream that the Lord gave me, what, about a year ago or so now, where in this dream I was a part of a group of scientists and we had discovered a formula that was going to change the world like Einstein got his equation, E equals MC squared, to change the world of physics, and not just the world of physics, but other dimensions of life too, and opened up the door for all kinds of new, uh, new uh, innovations and creations and things that we've all benefited from. Well, I was a part of this group of scientists, and we had found a new equation, and we were going to tell the world this equation and, I, and at the beginning of the dream, I didn't know what the equation was. I was like, I wonder if I'm going to see the equation, you know, my little narrator in my dream. And so uh, finally I see the equation, and the equation is abiding in Christ with an arrow and two more words, guaranteed success. How many of you would like to have guaranteed success? <laughs> well, Jesus told us how to have it. And he said, abide in me and I in you, and then you will bear fruit. You will bear much fruit, more fruit. You'll bear much fruit. This is why the Father has called us. He wants us to be successful in our mission, right? But the whole spirit of uh, John 14 through 17 is about this deep abiding relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I went into a little more detail on it yesterday. But the Holy Spirit said to me in the dream, there have been many books written about abiding in Christ. There have been many sermons preached on abiding in Christ. There have been many people who have thought that they understood what it means to abide in Christ. But Michael, I'm telling you that the body of Christ hardly has begun to understand what it means to abide in Christ. And that was a shocker. I was like, really? Wow. In other words... And it wasn't a rebuke, it was an invitation. It was an invitation, it's an invitation to us, it's an invitation to you. And to the people that we're leading in the body of Christ and that we're mentoring and that we're training, there is more to abiding in Christ than we thought in terms of the richness of this experience. The richness of the experience. He said, apart from me, you can't do anything. And we haven't been trained in this kind of moment-by-moment dependency on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been trained in a lot of self-strength. We've been trained in a lot of Western rationalism. And we've applied Western rationalism to our understanding of the kingdom. And it's not working. It's not working the way that God wants it to work. And so he's inviting us into this greater inheritance. It's... uh, It's the second reformation. It's the promised land of the journey of the body of Christ through human history. The book of Ephesians tracks this trajectory and it speaks and prophesies. Paul prophesies to us in Ephesians about where it's going 
to bring about this maturity and this unity that, that is going to happen. Uh, and it hasn't happened yet. And it's above and beyond our expectations. It's, beyond, it's above and beyond our imagination of how deep of a unity that we are going to experience. A union with God and a unity with one another who are true Christians. This is going to happen in human history. Jesus prayed for it in John 17. And he said this, the glory, Father, that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, which is union first, unity second, that they may be one so that the world will know that you've sent me. This is not a promise for another age. This is a promise for the world today. And Jesus says, Father, the glory that you've given me, I've given it. It's, it's, not, it's not all agreeing on all the fine points of theology that's going to unify us. It's the glory of God that's going to unify us. When we are together in the glory of God, and the glory of God is seen and manifested and felt, and it becomes tangible, and this is happening in our world right now. The glory of God is, is amplifying. The glory of God is accelerating. The glory of God is multiplying in terms of its breaking into uh, human experience. And we're, we're in on the beginnings of this. It's beginning to happen. And there's going to be more and more manifestations of this. And it's, it's so that the world will believe. The world is going to get the best chance it's ever had to believe in Jesus because of what God does in his people, in his sons and daughters, who become these hope reformers and, and begin to take in the promises of the greater inheritance. So, uh, Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples, the eleven, but they are confused And you can see it in the narrative. They're confused. They don't understand what he's saying exactly. And they are experiencing separation anxiety. And Jesus is ministering to their separation anxiety. He's saying, yeah, there's going to be a temporary separation, but it's going to lead to an unprecedented connection. It's going to lead to an unprecedented closeness. And the point of John 14 through 17 is not about separation. It's about closeness. A closeness that is beyond your imagination. It's beyond your experience. And we have to start preaching it and prophesying it before we experience it so that we will experience it. And that's what I'm doing with you. I'm prophesying to you that that God is going to do above and beyond what you can ask or imagine in terms of what is going to happen in this age with the children of God, with the believers, with the followers of Christ, and with the churches and the church movements. It's going to it's, it's going to eclipse our expectations and our imaginations. So start to let the Lord stretch your imagination, stretch your faith. The disciples, Jesus tells them in these chapters that their hearts are going to be broken. Your hearts are going to be broken, in essence. He's saying the dark, the dark night is coming and you're going to scatter. They said at one point, Jesus, now we know you came from the Father. Now we understand. Oh, you're not talking in parables anymore. We get it. And he said, do you really get it? 
tell you the truth. You're going to abandon me. You're going to leave me alone. But I'm not alone because the Father's with me. But he could foresee the trial that was coming. He could foresee the dark night that was coming. And so he told him about the dark night that was coming, but then he also told him about a few days later, it's going to be okay. I will come back to you. And he did come back to them. And he walked into their meeting rooms as the resurrected Christ. He revisited them in his resurrection form. And then he had a 40-day Bible study. In Acts chapter 1 it says, wow, what a great Bible study. The resurrected Christ leading the, the apostles through the scriptures, telling them things about the kingdom of God. Wow. We have some insight into what that is, what those Bible studies were about, because the apostles wrote, wrote it down in the letters. But their hearts were going to be broken, he told them, he prophesied to them. You're going to scatter. You're going to leave me alone. Their hearts were going to be broken. Because there were fissures already in the heart. They weren't mature yet. They, there were still weaknesses there. Spiritual weaknesses. There were human weaknesses there. Fissures in the heart. This is the way the Lord has shown it to me. Fissures in the heart. And Jesus... Jesus needed to address the fissures in their hearts. Those fissures became fractures when the weight came down of the crucifixion and the evil one had his day. Right? The, the powers of darkness thought that they were having a, victory, a great victory when Christ was crucified. The dark night came and their fissures became fractures because the fissures were already there and, it, and they, just, they just needed to walk through some circumstances that were heavy enough to where the fissures became fractures and their hearts broke. Peter's heart broke. But it was a necessary breaking. Peter had a, a terrible failure, you remember? We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to I submit to you as a part of this package of the Second Reformation is that Jesus wants to take us back to his mission. His mission is outlined in Isaiah 61, isn't it? The very famous Messianic passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then the first aspect of the preaching of the good news to the poor, the very first aspect, here it is, to heal the broken And then he moves on from there into the wonderful mission and the outcome of it all. But I submit to you that in, in the body of Christ, in the history of the church, and the churches and the church movements, that we have often leapfrogged over that first aspect of the mission to get into the rest of the mission. And that we have not been very good, generally, at healing the brokenhearted. And that's why the Lord led you to establish a counseling center. Right? Because you saw it. You saw the broken hearts. 
God's people as well as others. And there, there are people like Anne who've, who've been forerunners in this. But it's intimidating to us. Oh my gosh, we've got to heal the broken human heart. How do we do that? Let's get on with some evangelism. Right? Let's get on with, you know, let's just cast a few demons out. Let's get on with, you know, just Bible studies. I don't know about this heart stuff. It's intimidating. But in the Second Reformation, God is going to demystify this. And he's going to make it very profoundly simple. Profoundly simple. And we're in, in fellowship and in a company of people who are learning about how to heal the broken heart, really. And, and this wonderful body of people have been, through, through, since the 1970s, they've been pouring their hearts out to help some of the most broken people in the world recover their sanity and recover their life and become disciples of Jesus and become mature adults. Amazing percentage of recovery for people who've been addicted to all kinds of things and satanically abused, even horrible things. And they've they've built this wonderful approach to healing the broken heart. And they're friends of ours, and we're working with them. And their chief theoretician is Dr. Jim Wilder. And uh, their website is joystartshere.com and it's a joy-based approach to spiritual formation to help people come into the image of Christ. So I recommend them to you. They've written some amazing books and they're wonderful people. Isaiah chapter 61, the healing of the broken heart. Healing the broken heart is the first application of the good news. It's the first application of our evangelism. It's the first application of our discipleship. It's the first application of our pastoral care. Let's get people's hearts healed. Jesus' disciples' hearts got broken. The fissures became fractures under pressure. This is what's happened to Christians. We've, we've, put, in, we've put heavy jobs on them, heavy burdens on them to be church workers and send them out to and this is right, we're going to do this, but, but we haven't helped, we haven't had a paradigm for effectively healing broken hearts, or even discerning that the hearts were broken. We kind of have a denial about it. And the Lord is taking that away, he's saying, come on, he's not mad about it, he's just saying there's a better way. There's a better way. And I want to talk to you about that better way, and I'll introduce it through the scriptures first. And then, I, and then Terry and I are going to share our stories of how our broken hearts got healed. And we had our hearts broken in a number of ways. And we've had these fractures in our hearts, these fissures in our hearts that became fractures. And the Lord has wonderfully met us and made us wholehearted. You know, whole, wholeheartedness is like called engagement. We need engagement in Discipleship. We need engagement in the church world. We need engagement in our communities, right? Where your heart is at. But, but a lot of people have lost heart. And they're half-hearted. But that's not what God calls us to. This is what creates boredom in the world, is half-heartedness. Wholeheartedness creates passion for life, for Christ. 
So you know the stories, and so I won't turn to the passages, but I'll, I'll mention them for you. Peter had a fissure in his heart. You might call it a fissure of self-strength or a fissure of spiritual pride because Jesus said, you're going to, you're going to all forsake me, you know, warning them. And Peter said, not me, Lord. Not me. I'll die with you, Jesus. It's right before John 14. It's the last verses of John 13. I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'll die with you. And we know from other, the other Gospels, Luke 22, where Jesus says to Peter very specifically, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Think about that. This is what Satan does, right? Satan sifts people. He's going to sift you like wheat. You're gonna, he's gonna, I'm, the Father's going to let him touch you, oppress you a bit, and he's going to sift you, and you're going to find out what you're made of. Right? So, can you imagine the Son of God looking at you and saying, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat? I'd be like, oh no. Ah! And, and I imagine Peter thought initially, well, Lord, certainly you've rebuked him, right? Certainly you're not going to let him do this. So Jesus says, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. And when you've been restored, what? Back up, Jesus. When, when I've been restored, he's jumping ahead to the restoration. In other words, Peter, you're going to have a failure. You ever had a strategic failure in your life? That God allowed to come your way to show you your heart. So this is one of the ways of God with man. This is one of his ways. So he says, Satan's desire to sift you as we, but I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. God's going to use this trial. He's going to use this test, Peter. I've prayed for you so that when you are restored, you'll be able to strengthen your brothers. You'll be better off. You need this trial. You need to go through this because you've got a fissure in your heart. And then he said, no, Lord, I, no, I won't do it. I won't deny you. He said, I tell you the truth, Peter, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. He prophesies his failure to him. In order that after it happens, he's going to have some, something to hold on to, right? And Jesus chose, I, he chose the cock crowing as the, as the, as the signal of when it would happen, when it would have come to pass. And I think that was very strategic that Jesus chose the rooster as the sign. And you know why I think that is because Peter's problem, the fissure in his heart that became a fracture was a rooster inside of him. You're going to, you're going to all forsake me. Not me, Jesus. I'm I'm more dedicated than they are. He was strutting. He he had some spiritual pride. And Jesus saw that rooster inside of him. And said, we got to get that out of you. And the way it got out was through failure. And so you know the story. 
And, and lo and behold, in John 18, Peter does deny Jesus three times. And then the rooster crows. In the other Gospels it says, when the rooster crowed, Peter was in agony. And he, he, was, he wept bitterly and he ran, ran away. He ran away and he wept bitterly. He felt horrible. That he didn't have what it took to stand with Jesus. To die with Jesus like he said he would. You know, he was intimidated by a, a young servant girl. You were with him? And he, and he said, no, no. He swears he wasn't in the company of Christ. It also says that Jesus and Peter, in one of the Gospels, they lock eyes after it happens. Ooh. But then what happens after the resurrection in John 21? You know, some of the other Gospels made it pretty clear. Peter kind of resigned. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to being a fisherman. He kind of resigned. This is another fissure in the heart. A fissure of resignation. We have a disappointment with God. And we just, I don't do it anymore, right? This is what Peter was tempted to do. And so, he's out fishing. Jesus shows up on the beach and yells out to the fishermen because they've, they've fished all night and didn't catch anything. Ah, do, do it again. And, they, and great miracle happens and John discerns, it's the Lord. You know, they probably can't see that far who it is. It's the Lord. Peter jumps, he puts on his outer garment, jumps in the water, and they make their way to the shore and there's Jesus. It says none of them dared say that it was the Lord, but they knew it was the Lord. He must have been again in some kind of, you know, other form. Um, he makes breakfast for them. And then he takes Peter aside. Do you love me? Ah, the pain that must have, he must have felt after denying Jesus three times. Do you love me, Peter? Oh, I do. I, I love you. I know I failed, but I love you. Three times, Jesus asks him in different ways, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, in essence, oh God, Lord, I do love you. I do love you. All right, now you're ready. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. I'm commissioning you. You've had this fissure in your heart of spiritual pride in the past it has been dealt with now. You've had a strategic failure and now we're processing the failure, the pain of your failure, Peter. And I, hope, I don't hold it against you. I don't count it against you. Now it's going to become a tool in your tool belt so that you can really be a pastor. You can really be an apostle. Now you're ready because we dealt with the fissure. And your broken heart is healed by confessing your love for me and my presence here with you, letting you know it's okay. I don't hold it against you. You forsake me, but I'm commissioning you. And I'm, I'm calling out the best in you now, that love that you have for me. Okay, Peter. You're ready now. 
And then we see Peter just some weeks later on the day of Pentecost as the spokesperson for the apostolic company standing in the the midst of the very crowd that put Jesus on the cross, telling them the truth, unafraid, willing to lay down his life now. History says that when they when Peter was older, which Jesus also prophesied how he would die, and when they were ready to take him to death. That he he went and they were going to crucify him. And he, and he said, don't crucify me like my Lord. So they turned him upside down. He was crucified upside down. Because he didn't want, he didn't, he didn't want to, his image to, you know, mess with the image of Jesus on the cross. <clears throat> it, was a, it was an act of humility. I'll tell the other story, Paul, the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he was he was a zealot. He was a zealous rabbi, Jewish rabbi, right? He stood by when they stoned Stephen, the first martyr, and laid, laid, their, laid their garments at the feet of Saul, this young rabbi, brilliant young rabbi, zealous young rabbi, who was, as he says later, in, uh, where is it in Galatians, that he says, I was faultless in my religion. I was meticulous. I, you know, I obeyed every rule. I towed the line like nobody I knew. That's Philippians, actually. And uh, so they lay their garments at his feet because it meant that he was the one who was commanding the stoning. He was the one in charge. Paul had murder in his heart. But he thought he was serving God. Like Jesus said in John 14 to 17, he says, there's going to be a time when people think that killing you is doing service for God. And Saul fulfilled that bill as a Jewish rabbi. So Paul had some heart issues, right? And probably the big, the big fissure in his heart was self-righteousness. He was, he was a proud, knowledgeable, brilliant rabbi who did not believe in Jesus and thought that Jesus was messing up the Jewish religion and he was going to stamp it out. And so he, had a, he misunderstood God's nature. This is, this is a phenomenon in the Bible. Like Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but you refuse to come to me. I know you. I know that the love of God is not in your hearts. That's what he told them. But they knew the Bible. They knew their theologies. And there's, unfortunately, a lot of that in Christendom as well. God is going to get to it. He's going to get to it. And so... Saul, 
Well, Paul, Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his, his Greek name. He misunderstood God's nature, and he's, he's just on a rampage on his way to Damascus. We don't know if it was a horse or not. I think legend says he was on a horse. But Jesus appears to him. Brilliant light. A voice speaks out of heaven. The, the invisible universe right next door spoke, just right there, spoke to him. Called him by name. Knocked him to the ground. His companions, what does it say? They, they, they saw the light, but they didn't hear the words. But Paul heard the words. And he was struck blind. That's our Jesus. Meek and mild Jesus. Striking Paul blind. <laughs> Got to expand our view of Jesus a little bit. Knocks him on the ground. And the, and the fear of God comes on this rabbi. Who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. The one you're persecuting. What should? What do I need to do, Lord? What do I need to do? So this is the prophetic, right? This is the power of the prophetic experience coming into preparing apostles. Prophecy prepares apostles. Hearing God prepares apostles. Meeting them in their weakness. Meeting them in their brokenness. Dealing with the fissures in their heart. Paul had a big one. And he becomes like a little child. He's blind and he needs someone to lead him. And Jesus told him where to go. Go to a man named Ananias. Isn't it interesting how Jesus loves to use human beings? I mean, Jesus is right there. The resurrected Jesus is right there. He could tell him everything that he needed to know. But he decided not to do it that way. He wanted to use Ananias, his servant. Because Jesus loves to use human beings. He wants partners. He's not short on power. He's short on partners. Okay? Sometimes we say, Lord, what about your power? Show more of it. Well, I need more partners. How about you? You be one of those? Yikes. Okay. I'll be a partner. So he, he, um, he tells Paul to go to Ananias. And, and simultaneously, Ananias is praying. I think he was praying, it says. Maybe not. Maybe he's just walking around his house. But G, he has a vision of the Lord. He has a vision of Jesus. And he says, Ananias, I've got an assignment for you. Now, Ananias is a deacon. He's not an elder. He's not an apostle. He's not a prophet. He's just a disciple. He's called a disciple. This is normal for disciples. This ordinary men and women Loving Jesus, and all of a sudden he has a vision of Jesus. Again, the prophetic in action. Right? Preparing for the apostolic mission. A great apostolic mission. But there's work that needs to be done in someone's heart before it's going to happen. It's this man Saul, this young man Saul. Ananias, go to the Wherever street called straight is that what it is? Go to the street called straight, and I want you to minister to Saul. 
And Ananias says, Lord, haven't you read the newspapers? I just enjoy this analogy. I think apostles 
there, it, 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 the word means sent one. An apostle is a sent one. And I think that the most profound aspect of that being sent is that it's not being sent from Edinburgh to uh, New York to plant a church. It might happen. That's not the, that's not the essential sending. The, the primary sending is from heaven to earth. Like it, says of the, it says of John the Baptist, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. This is what apostles are, in my view. I have kind of a high view of apostleship. Men and women sent by God. It's not about geography first. It's about from heaven to earth. And yeah, they probably have, they'll probably have translocal responsibilities and assignments. And there's certainly a, a, a lot of that in the, in the true apostolic ministry. It's not just to one local church, but there was an apostle who stayed in a local church. His name was James. And he stayed in Jerusalem, and he became the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, but he was an apostle. They called him Camel Knees because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. That was his nickname. Half-brother of Jesus. He wrote the epistle James. So apostles are sent from heaven to earth. And they come out of the ranks of prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And I, I like the analogy of the hand, the fivefold ministry of the hand. You've heard it before? The, the prophets point, the evangelists extend beyond the others, the pastors wear the ring finger, the wedding band, and the, t- and the teacher gets in your ear. <laughs> and the apostles are raised up out of the ranks of these ministries of Christ. And it's the ap- apostolic leaders who are able to relate well to the others, the opposable thumb. So you can grab things. And this is why we need apostles. They can grab, they can grab things and, and make it useful, make our hand useful, make the whole make a whole team that's that's needed. And but they come up out of the ranks of the others. And and I think apostles are multi-gifted. Apostles have a touch of the other ministries that have been cult, that's been cultivated in them. And, and some of them are different than others. Some are more prophetic apostles, and some are more evangelistic apostles, and some are more pastoral apostles, and some are more teaching apostles. There's different, different kinds and shades of apostles. But like, like it says of Jesus about his high priesthood, no one takes this honor to themselves. We need to be aware of this. We don't take these honors to ourselves, to call ourselves this, appoint ourselves this. There's a lot of self-appointed ministries. We need, we need Jesus to appoint us first. And then we need the body of Christ around us to identify, help us identify, oh yeah, this is what this person is. We're going to receive them in this capacity, and as we do them, we're released to do it. So that's just a little beginning of that. And we'll maybe... Start to craft some questions that you have, uh, and Terry and I are going to tell our stories this afternoon, and then we'll entertain some questions. 
and maybe do some ministry time. So that's kind of the rest of the agenda. It's lunchtime. So Lord, we pray that you would bless our food and our, our time together eating. Thank you for how the early disciples devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And so we devote ourselves to the breaking of bread now. In Jesus' name. So, let's say a prayer. Lord, we thank you for the rhythms of the kingdom that uh, come in like waves upon us in different kinds of waves. We just welcome you, Holy Spirit. We rely on you. We make room for you to be the conductor of the symphony. I thank you for this this afternoon, this beautiful group of men and women. Lord, Terry and I just bring blessing to them from our city, blessing to them from the body of Christ in Kansas City. Lord, we bless our friends, our new friends and old friends. We bless them today. And Holy Spirit, we welcome you to do things in that secret place, in the hidden place that only you can do. And we also welcome you to do things that only you can do in the visible world. And we pray that the kingdom will manifest this afternoon. Come, Holy Spirit, break in upon us in any way that you choose to. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yesterday uh, afternoon in our uh, convocation, that's what I call it. It was not just a seminar. It was not just a school. It was a, it was a, a gathering to the Lord. And the scripture says, unto you shall the gathering of the people be. And um, so we had a convocation yesterday. And in the afternoon, we prayed for illnesses to leave and uh, for bodies, physical bodies to be touched by the Holy Spirit. And we had some wonderful, manifestations of uh, healing that happened yesterday. There were pains of all kinds that left people's bodies instantly. And then there was some, a couple of, at least a couple of miracles that happened. Uh, and one happened to Mike. Mike's sitting there in the back. And uh, Mike had an accident when he was, 40 years ago, had an accident, broke his collarbone. And uh, so yesterday when we were praying, uh, nobody touched him. The Holy Spirit was moving in the room. Uh, the whole room becomes an altar. So we're changing altar calls into just whole rooms, right, these days. And it's part of the Second Reformation. Uh, every, every place is a dangerous place to be in a good way. So uh, nowhere to hide. So anyway, God touched Mike's collarbone that had a lump on it for all those years, and it disappeared. And uh, so that was awesome. And another lady, Diane, uh, had... Uh, she had a frozen shoulder and so and some kind of atrophy of her bicep or something like that. We don't know all the medical parts of it, but anyway, uh, instantly as the Lord moved upon her, nobody touched her either. She was able to raise her arm for the first time in years because the Lord caused her shoulder to unfreeze. So those are, those are signs uh, of the kingdom. They're signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we're in that same environment today, so yeah, he, he's free to do what he will do, and and he also wants to be he also wants to be welcomed. That's another thing that we need to learn is God's omnipresent. A lot of times we think, oh, if God's omnipresent, yeah, 
he'll do whatever he wants to do. But he actually loves the interactivity. He wants human partners. And the Bible teaches us from Genesis to Revelation, God wants human partners. He wants us to work with him. And he wants us to be a part of the story. And so he doesn't just do it on his own and just have us sit in the stands and watch. He says, come on down on the playing field with me. I want to use you. Right? We saw that with Ananias and uh, how God used Ananias. Uh, after a, a personal visitation of Jesus, he said, go see Ananias. He's got something more for you. Right? Same thing happened to Peter uh, with Cornelius. Uh, you know, Cornelius has a visitation of a holy angel. Uh, by the way, there's a lot of Corneliuses in the world uh, that we need to have eyes to see. These are people that are not Jewish, they're not Christians, they're kind of pre-Christians, and they have a grace, there's a grace of God working in their lives, because when the angel came to Cornelius, he said, your prayers and your alms have ascended to God as a memorial. This is a different doctrine than the fundamentalists have taught. God doesn't hear the prayer centers. <laughs> well, or people that aren't born again, but he does. And he heard Cornelius' prayers, and an angel came from heaven to tell him so. But then the angel said, I want you to send for Peter. Because God wants to use human beings in the kingdom. He wants to include them in the story of the kingdom. He wants you in the story. He wants me in the story. And so there are things that God simply won't do uh, unless there's human partners who say, I'll go, Lord, I'll, I'll take the risk to work with you. And uh, sometimes he will call you to take risks. John Wimber used to say, uh, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. <laughs> That's poignant. So, um, so we just welcome the Holy Spirit and, uh, and ask him to do things that only he can do. Uh, I, f- I forgot to mention this morning uh, something that takes the, the traditional Calvinist-Arminian debate uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It, uh, uh, it makes it a very boring uh, argument. Okay, This is a feature of the kingdom that makes that a boring argument. We need to get beyond that argument. And uh, Phil has some insight into this because he's a historian and he studied there's, you know, like you said, the Calvinist-Arminian debate wasn't really a Calvinist-Arminian, it wasn't a debate between Calvin and Arminius. It was other parties, but we'll have to wait for your book to learn about that, I guess. Anyway, um, I, I talked about divine initiative, remember? That's the first movement of this dance, of this genuine, let's call it this, a genuine interactive relationship with God, with the Trinity, in real time. A genuine interactive, <coughs> call it a friendship, a genuine interactive friendship with the Holy Trinity in real time. And this is a, a vital concept of the Second Reformation that the Lord is reinforcing. So the first movement of the dance is divine initiative. And that's where we always start. We always start with God's initiative. We always start with God's grace. And we're grounded in that. It's, and we fall back into it as well. We oftentimes. So it's so important to be grounded in that. But then there's human response to divine initiative. And God, God has ordained human response as, a, as an element of his kingdom. And it's important to him. 
that we respond to his initiatives. It matters. It matters in heaven. It matters on earth. It matters that we respond by the grace of God to the grace of God. And there just are things that, that won't happen that need to happen if there aren't human beings that are responding and saying yes. Right? That's, that's human response. But here's what takes the debate to, uh, it makes it obsolete. It makes the debate boring and obsolete. There's a third movement to the dance in Scripture. And this is one that you don't hear as much about, but you kind of know it. It's divine response to human response. Now, when you begin to understand and experience divine response to human response, divine response to your response to his initiatives, this is what makes your faith passionate. Because you have a God in heaven who is literally interacting with you and responding to your responses, to his invitations. This is so exciting. And it's a little scary in a good way. It's a little unsettling. Like the Almighty God responds to me, to my prayer, to my worship and song, to my prayer and the laying on of my hands, and to my prophecy and my words, and he comes behind me and responds and confirms by the Holy Spirit. With things that only the Holy Spirit can do? Yes, he does. This is so exciting. So what we've been talking about today and leading up to is this conversation about the apostolic ministry of the body of Christ and the, and the prophetic ministry of the Holy Spirit and how these things dovetail, how these things interact. And Jesus prepared his apostles, the 11, and then the 12 that came, uh, and then the other apostles that followed afterward, that he had this conversation with them to prepare them for the commissioning. And he dealt with their hearts. He helped their hearts. Let's, Let's call it that. He dealt with the fissures in their hearts that can become fractures under pressure. And the Lord wants to restore to us this ministry of the healing of the broken heart. He sees the fissures in the human heart and he wants to heal the fissures before they become fractures. And the church body, the body of Christ and the local churches and ministries, we need to get skilled at this whole idea of healing broken hearts. I've been a, a pastor and a counselor for 40 years and I'm convinced that every one of us has have had our hearts broken in one way or another to one degree or another, by one means or another. All of us. And we all need, we all have cracks. And we, and we need these cracks to be healed by Jesus. He comes to heal the brokenhearted. And, and my experience is that, that especially in the backgrounds that we've come from through the revival movements, we, my perception is, and it's not just those movements, it's others as well, is that we've leapfrogged over this ministry of Christ, of healing the broken heart. We've gotten, we don't want to mess with it. It's, it's hard, it's confusing and, and challenging. 
So we want to leapfrog over it and we get people studying the Bible and we kind of give them reasons to believe and then they make better choices. And, you know, I, I mentioned that equation, equation yesterday, which is an equation that comes from the Enlightenment. It's, it's Greek philosophy rather than biblical theology. And it's reason plus choices bring transformation. That's the equation. And the Western world has been filled with this because we've elevated human reason beyond its place in the human being. Reason plus choices bring transformation. And, uh, and so, but then you need a bunch of accountability in order for there to be productivity. Accountability becomes the key, you know, to, to people towing the line. And this equation is, is going out the window, okay? The Lord is saying, nah, I don't want more of that. There's something deeper, there's something better that transforms people from the inside out. And the Lord has spoken to us clearly about there's too much outside-in Christianity. He wants inside-out Christianity. This is what Jesus came to bring us. You know, the Jewish world was filled with it too, back in his day. The Jewish religion. And Jesus came to to institute a different kind of spirituality, a genuine, authentic, inside-out transformation. It doesn't come by just giving you reasons so that you make better choices and I'm going to hold you accountable to the choices that you're making. That's not the paradigm of New Testament transformation into the image of Christ. There's a better way, a better equation. Here it is. Identity plus belonging lead to transformation. Identity plus belonging lead to transformation. And we have to become well-grounded in this new identity, the new creation that we are a part of by the grace of God. And, and that sense of belonging, we all need to belong. We need to belong to a group. We need to belong to a tribe. We need to belong to a family. God's a family man. I can put it that way. He's a family man. He's always he's called father. Right? He's called papa. He's a family man. We all need spiritual families. And the, the natural family has been, you know, sliced up and diced up and, and it's under, you know, it's dissipated in so many cultures in so many ways. And we we need the restoration of the of the natural family, but but in but sometimes that doesn't happen, and, but people still need family. They need spiritual families. And our church lives, our local churches, need to be families, not factories. Right? Agree with me? So, so as we keep moving toward this discussion about apostolic ministry and how the prophetic blesses it, how the, how the prophetic prepares it, how it it, uh, it empowers it. You know, the apostolic is about, it's about mission. It's about being on mission in the world. God has a mission in the world. And it's, it's uh, groundbreaking. It's, it's apostolic in nature. So the apostolic is very important. But we need this prophetic power. We need this prophetic insight. We need this prophetic spirit to animate our, our work, Right? There's a lot of work to be done. Um, so what I want to do is tell a story of my life, and then Terry's going to tell a story from her life about the healing of the fissures of our hearts. 
And we could tell you quite a few more stories. I'll, I'll, I'll refer to one, and then I'll tell the story of the other. The, the, the one that happened, that I was aware of that happened when I was quite young, when I was about eight years old, was an experience where I was shamed by my older brother, Mark. And, and he was my hero. He was my idol. My dad was kind of emotionally absent. And so I bonded to my older brother as a kind of father figure. That was not a very good uh, choice or substitute for my dad. Uh, my, my brother was only two and a half years older than me. He was, he, But I loved him and I wanted to be with him all the time and play with him. And he taught me a lot of things. But, but you know, there was also uh, times when I'd get on his nerves and he'd not appreciate that. And it was painful at times to be a younger brother to, to him. Uh, and this one time in particular... He shamed me because I was a sensitive kid and I would cry. And so this particular day we were outside and I got my feelings hurt for something we were doing or not doing and I started to cry. And he got so mad at me. And I remember it when I tell the story, I remember it like it happened yesterday. He got so mad at me. His face turned red. He marched over to me in the front in our front yard. And he grabbed me by the shoulders and he started to shake me. And he said, I hate it when you cry. I hate it when you cry. He clenched his teeth. He was serious. And I, I, you're a crybaby. You're a crybaby. You're a crybaby. I hate it when you cry. Stop crying. Stop crying. And I just, you know, was shocked by that. His anger and the physical shaking as an eight-year-old kid. And, uh, and a fissure came into my heart. My heart was broken by that. You know? Uh, isn't it amazing? Even just the little things that can happen to us in life, but they have powerful implications. They're metaphorical, right? In nature, when they happen, this happened to me at eight, and I made, I made a vow. I didn't know I was making a vow. Satan is very crafty, right? He's good at this. He's been doing it for millennia, helping people to make wrong vows. Well, I made a vow, and you can probably guess the vow that I made when I was eight. You know, somebody say it to me real loud. I'll never cry again. That's it. You got it. I'll never cry again. See, this is the this is the vows that we make that are unhealthy. It's the clenched fist. Larry Crabb, my friend, calls it the clenched fist. I will never, or I will always. It's always in the nevers that God's not a part of. <laughs> and that's what I said to myself. And and. The Lord's taken me back to that experience and he's shown me where Satan was. Satan was right beside me, handing me a poisoned arrow, saying, stick that in your heart. And I did. That's how Satan primarily works, by the way. If he gets you to cooperate with him, that's a lot more powerful. He can't just shoot arrows everywhere. He wants you to take them and do it to yourself. So I did. I I made that vow at eight years old. And I was a sensitive kid. And you can probably tell that from being with you, there's a sensitivity side to me that's God-given, right? It's part of who I am. Well, I, I stuck myself. I'll never cry again. And you know what? I didn't, didn't cry when I was nine. Didn't cry when I was 12. Didn't cry when I was 15. Didn't cry when I was 18. When I was 19, my grandfather passed away. Everybody in the funeral home was crying. Not me. I was a spiritual Christian. I was sitting in the back. I couldn't cry. That's when I knew something was wrong. Couldn't cry. 
Couldn't cry. Isn't that powerful? The power of an eight-year-old will empowered by the enemy to say something like that and jerk me, you know, from that shame and pain. Jerk me into being somebody I was never created by God to be. And it lasted. It was powerful. It just, it was like a stone in my heart. And I finally, when I started reading the Bible, I was like, King David, he was a great warrior, great king. He filled his bed with tears. I was like, wow. I guess real men do cry. Because that was kind of the culture of the time. Real men don't cry. So I want to be a real man. I wouldn't cry. But I saw King David crying. I was like, God, help me. Change me. Do something. I didn't know, I didn't know why. At that point, I, couldn't, I didn't know why I couldn't cry. And then I got married to my beautiful wife, 22 years old. One night, early on in our marriage, we're talking on the couch, just the two of us. My head is in her lap. We're opening our hearts to each other. Somebody safe. Somebody I could be vulnerable with. And I told her that I couldn't cry. We prayed together. And the Lord took me back to that vow. The amazing thing about vows, if you make them, guess what? You can break them. And that's what I did. By the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, I broke that vow. I said, Lord, I remember. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hurt my soul. Damaged my soul. Satan damaged my soul. And I, and I asked him to forgive me, to cleanse me, to release me from that, that power. And the tears came and filled Terry's granny dress with my tears. It looked like she peed her pants. Dress when she got. I just filled her lap with my tears. Oh, so wonderful. What a wonderful thing. What a healing. It's a healing. See, that was a fissure in my heart. So I'll tell you the other one. And Terry, you come. I'll try to make this quick. So I turned 60 two years ago. My visit, and we were having my birthday party at our kitchen table. And, and um, Terry says to me, Michael, what do you want for your 60th year? I said, I'd love to go to a beach, you know, and have some vacation, a place where I could think and write and walk the beach and be warm. And, and so while she's standing there, the Holy Spirit says to her, you're going to go to Hawaii. And so she blurts this out and prophesies it to the whole family who's sitting here. We're going to go to Hawaii this year. Like, okay, who's going to pay for that, you know? <laughs> My left brain. Uh, <laughs> So, so she prophesies it. And, and so I'm like, okay, and everybody at the table is kind of like, okay, mom, you know, whatever. We know that you hear the Lord, so whatever. So I pick up a, one of the cards, open up the, one of the birthday cards. It's from my daughter. There's a picture on the card of Hawaii. No collaboration at all. So I was like, wow, look at that. Like, I guess we're going to Hawaii. So out of the blue, two weeks later, I'm guessing two weeks, 
close to that. We get an email out of the blue from uh, one of the main YWAM leaders on the base there in Kona, Hawaii, inviting us to come and speak. So I was like, where you go, babe? So the Lord ordained a trip for us to Kona, Hawaii. So Terry booked a, a place at a, on the weekend. We had two weeks there, and they gave us a week's vacation on the front end. It was wonderful. And got to see the, the, the big island and... Terry booked us uh, a night at one of the resorts up at the uh, volcano. And so we, we did the volcano thing and learned about it that day. And that night we went uh, to a nice dinner and then we went to uh, bed that night. And in the middle of the night, Terry has a dream, as she often does. It's very unsettling to live with a prophetic person sometimes. You never know what the dream's going to be. So... So she has this dream, and in this dream, she'll tell you more about it. In this dream, God uses images from the volcano as a message to her about what he wants to do. And in the middle of the dream, he says, I brought you here for an Emmanuel healing. I brought you here for an Emmanuel healing. So we know what Emmanuel healings are. Emmanuel healings are, uh, it's a terminology used by our friends at joystartsary.com. So they have this whole approach to healing that's called Emmanuel healing, and it's very unique and special. It has some very important features to it that make it so profound and so simple. And it's about Emmanuel, Emmanuel coming to us. Like he did when I was 22, Emmanuel came to me and showed me a memory of a time when I made a vow, right? So that was Emmanuel taking me back, and and I discovered that he was there before I knew him, before I was a Christian. This is what Christians discover, is that Jesus was with them before they knew him, right? This is common, and he's always been there. Psalm 139 is the theology of this. Psalm 139 is God is always there. He's Emmanuel. He is Emmanuel. The world has changed because Emmanuel came. And the world hardly realizes it, but the world changed because of Emmanuel coming. And Emmanuel came, and so... Uh, he, he said, I brought you here for an Emmanuel healing and gave Terry some images from that dream that made her know the, the issue, the fissure in her heart that he wanted to heal. Amazing. And then she woke up, we woke up. She said, Michael, I had a dream last night. We're here for an Emmanuel healing. So we took that morning and we prayed together. And we asked the Lord, you know, you do gratitude first like we did here this morning. We did gratitude. That's the first part of the Emmanuel healing. You get... You get that flow of joy. You get that flow of the presence of God and the appreciation. And and, uh, and then you ask the Lord to take you, you know, back into something that was negative. What does he want to say? What does he want to do? And so we prayed that way. And she'll tell you more about what happened for her. She had an amazing experience. But in the middle of her vision, as, as we were praying, she had a vision. And in her vision, she saw me. And I was in another room from her in this vision in a home that we lived in when we were young, marrieds. And I'm in another another room and Jesus is there with me in the room and he's got his hand on my heart and he's weeping because there's a hardness in my heart and over my heart, like a crustiness that that Terry saw. That half of my heart was crusted over and Jesus was praying for me and, and he was weeping because he was sad over that hardness that was there. And so that's what she saw. And so as a part of our prayer time, I said, Lord, uh, you know, I, 
why, did my, why was my heart hard? What was it that caused that hardness in me? And suddenly, out of the blue, I remember a relationship that I had with a young man when I was 13 and 14 years old. And he was probably 21. And, and this young man was a brilliant college student from Chicago, uh, going to school in Chicago. And he'd come and visit Detroit, where I lived, and he was friends with our neighbors, and they introduced them, him to me and my family. And he would come on breaks and spend time at our home. And his name was Robert. At first, I couldn't remember his name. And I oh, yeah, Robert. And so Robert uh, was a true intellectual. And he, uh, he took an interest in me as a 13-year-old kid. And I was, I was vulnerable as a 13-year-old kid uh, to have that kind of attention from an older man. Uh, he was a young man, but he was older than me, and he was brilliant. And so I looked up to him in some ways. And my dad, again, was not around, kind of absent, you know, emotionally absent. And I never understood that that was a trauma in my life. But in learning from the life model people, I learned that that's a trauma. It's a type A trauma. Type A trauma are the things that are supposed to happen for us that don't. It's a type A trauma. It's kind of a passive kind of trauma. Then type B traumas are the things that happen to people that should never, ever happen to people. Type, so I realized for the first time, oh, that was a type, that was a type A trauma. I was vulnerable as a 13-year-old kid looking for male affirmation, and Robert came along, and Robert saw something in me that he valued, and he called me up into being an intellectual like he was. And he taught me how to play chess, and he handed me a book. It was about that thick, 13-year-old kid or 14-year-old, however old I was, and handed it to me, read this. And it was the book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And her philosophy called objectivism. And Robert was an objectivist. And he was an Ayn Rand fan. And he gave me the Bible of objectivism. And I read it. And, and I learned about objectivism. I wanted to be like Robert, sort of, part of me. And so I decided to be an objectivist. And besides, Mr. Spock had come out on TV. And I liked him. I really liked Mr. Spock. He was so logical. And uh, he suppressed his emotions. And so... You know, I was set up for this, this bait from the enemy in my life. And so I became, I thought I did, became an objective. I was kind of a pseudo-objectivist. It's a very, very poor the philosophy. It's about being discompassionate. No obligation to, be, to have compassion for people, basically. And, and also atheistic. So, anyway, I put on this mask of the objectivist intellectual like Robert for a few years. Right? So while we're praying, that's what I remember. I remember Robert and his influence on me. I never, I never thought about Robert since I became a Christian. But God reminded me of that influence, right? So this is, this is what I prayed and this is what came. This is how the Emmanuel process works. Jesus reminded me. And I said, Lord, where were you when this happened and Heal me or, you know, show me what you want to do or say retroactively. 
uh, as a manual, and I didn't get an answer. And so that was in May of 2015, right? I think it was 15. So 2015, so May, I pray, June, July, August, August. I'm remembering, I think it's August. God answered my prayer. This is the way the Emmanuel process works sometimes. It doesn't always happen on the spot. This is so fun. God answered my prayer in August. I had a dream, very vivid dream. And in this dream, the book Atlas Shrugged comes up into my face. And I see the, the Greek god Atlas on the cover. And the cover animates. And he shrugs the he shrugs the globe off of his shoulders and it rolls off of him onto the edge of the book and freezes. And then, the next scene of the dream, I'm back in, in, in an experience when I was six or seven years old. And it was a literal experience that I had. And I'm in the car with a family friend, uh, an adult named John Dean, and John is driving the car, and I'm six or seven years old, and I'm in the passenger seat, and my brother and his two boys are in the back seat, and John was a different kind of man. He was an artsy kind of guy. I'd never been around artsy men at all, or musical men. He was a, he was a singer. He was a kind of an actor, and, and uh, just, I didn't know what to do with John Dean. He was just kind of an interesting character. And so we're driving down the road. This literally happened in my life. Driving down the road, and I'll never forget it. As soon as I saw it in the dream, I remembered, you know, the, the experience very, very well that God was taking me back to. And here's what happened. John Dean is driving down the road with us, and he, he's kind of kind of bebopping and happy. He looks at me in the eyes. He says, I want to sing you boys a song. I'm a little intimidated by his enthusiasm, you know? And and so we're all kind of like, Okay. <laughs> And he belts out the song really loudly. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 That's in my dream. And and it was a true memory. I never heard that song before. I never heard a man sing it. I never forgot the tune. I never forgot the words. And in my dream, Jesus said to me, Michael, the reason that you remember that so well is because I sang that song to you through John. Because I saw what was coming. I saw what was going to happen when you were 13. And I saw Atlas Shrugged. And I made a preemptive strike against the enemy in your life so that that would not stick. And that's what he told me in the dream. And then I come back to the first scene and the globe is hanging off the edge of the book and the scene animates and the globe falls off of the book into two giant hands. That I knew were the hands of Jesus. And I wake up out of this dream in August of 2015 as a 60-year-old man. 
And something changed in me. And I wanted to write poetry. <laughs> that was, I, I, I've never written poetry. I've written a bunch of poetry since then. It was something that awakened in me. A part of my being that had been frozen. This artistic side that I wouldn't let out, right? And I started writing poetry. I'll read you a poem before we leave, maybe. Terry, come on up. Yes, for a while, <clears throat> every day, I'd wake up and he'd say, want to hear my poem? <laughs> and it's, it's, they're great poems. It's like, but after 30 days, you're like, maybe I'll wait a little bit. <laughs> it's another poem. It was just an explosion. You know, when your heart explodes, then it just, you know, starts pouring. Things that are stored up start pouring. So I'll tell you the first part of that story, basically, when we were in Hawaii. And um, I've not shared this publicly. I've shared it with our close friends, obviously, but um, haven't felt led to do it until today. He said, I think you're supposed to share it. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So it gives you an on-ramp to see into our hearts that gives you a way to do it for yourself. When you understand another person's story and the way that the Lord works with hearts, then it becomes something you, you can intuitively do. You just know how to do it, and the Holy Spirit is all about it. <clears throat> so, um, I grew up on a farm in Ohio, very free spirit, um, successful person, had a lot of fun. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Hoosiers. But uh, that was my life, pretty much. And uh, pretty carefree and strong woman. Came to Jesus when I was 19 in college during the Jesus movement. Got slam dunked into that. Never turned back, never wanted to. Um, got involved with this guy because he was a leader on campus who was quite uh, well known for preaching on campus and he was, he was quite the guy. And um, I, we got together in um, 1976, I don't know. We knew, we knew each other from about 1975 on, 74, 75 on. We were friends with all this gang of people. We were all the Jesus people running around, and you know nobody was getting married, but... All of a sudden, everybody started getting married. We were the first ones, and we opened it up for everybody else. So um, we get married in 1977, and he had a relationship with a guy who was going to disciple him into becoming a church leader down in Little Rock, Arkansas. Previously, I felt like I was probably going to be a missionary, and the Lord really clearly said no to that. And then the next time, they had find out because I'm marrying a pastor and we're going to Arkansas, which is also a foreign mission for me. I'm a North northerner in the United States. I'm from Ohio. And Arkansas is deep south. So it was a, a big culture shock. So we um, go down there to be discipled and trained in ministry. And um, as I came into this culture, I was not aware instantly of some of the elements present that would be damaging to me. You know, 
I've experienced damage from religion. I don't know if you guys can relate to that. The Lord is all about relationship, but he really does not like religion. In the words of one of our favorite teachers, Bill Bill Johnson, he says, religion is boring and cruel. And uh, that's where I experienced the cruelty of religion. And it was... It was very hard and damaging to our relationship also as a husband and wife. So the particular leader that we were working with had some ideas about women, which were twisted from biblical passages and very anti-women, saying that um, women were basically the reason for the fall, that it was because we were more easily deceived, that we were intrinsically flawed and, and... that we, should, we could only be trusted if we were totally submitted to men and, and no, no one should ever teach or be a leader. And I'm coming out of being a leader, having been around the world as a missionary, done all these things, and all of a sudden I'm hearing this. And I'm married to a guy who is in league with these guys and being trained with these guys. And it was a big shock and trauma for me as a young woman, as a young wife. I was 23 when we married. I was about 24 or five when this happened. Uh, I have the memory that came to me um, when we were in Kona was one that we had visited a long time. So in our life, we had really worked through the pain of having had some really false doctrine, really anti-woman doctrine shoved down our throats kind of shepherding movement stuff, if you know what I'm talking about with that. It was a reaction, I believe, to women's liberation. I think people were trying to course correct and very often do that in extremes. But um, whatever the case, it was, it was a big uh, cruelty that I, that I experienced. And I rem- the memory that I had... Um, was something that I, I guess I tucked it away deep in my heart because it was so traumatic at the moment. I didn't have the resources, the grace in my life to deal with it. It was the moment that my heart broke when I was in that situation. And uh, we were standing, I was standing in my bedroom and I had just made my bed. And I'm standing there and feeling utterly shocked about what had happened to me. And I'm saying, God, what has just happened? What has happened? How did I get here? What's going on? And I saw a big burlap sack being put over me. And in our, in our country, in the Civil War or in the slavery years, that's how they would capture slaves. They would put, put a big sack around them and just throw them in a wagon and take them off and they would be enslaved. So it was like a spirit of, it was, a, I think, an evil spirit that was coming at me in the form of religion. And uh, I remember I, I, what I saw in this, in this experience was the moment that my heart broke, it just like ripped and split open, open. And I'm standing there bleeding on the floor. And I asked Jesus, where were you when this happened to me? Where were you when this happened to me? And I saw him kneeling on the floor He had his head in my knees. He was kneeling in the blood and sobbing, just sobbing and sobbing over what was happening to me. 
And I felt pain. There was a pocket of pain in my heart that was closed up in a closet of that moment of heartbreak that went into him in that moment. And I said, Lord, then why didn't you just take me out of it? Why didn't you just get us out of it? And he took me out the window of the bedroom. Oh, and before I should say that, the other thing that went off in my heart where I'm asking the Lord what was going on, I, I, there was a shutdown in my heart where I said, I guess I've made my bed and I just have to lay in it. It's like that's when your heart just resigns, it signs off. And he was coming to open that back up again. So I asked him where, you know, why didn't he just take me out? And he took me out the window of the bedroom and I flew with him through the timeline of our history and he showed me how he had walked with me through all the different stages of walking me out of that bondage that had come onto me. And now it's a bigger picture than just my own life. You know, it's been a condition of the church where there's been a division that has come falsely, I believe, between men and women using Bible verses, using supposedly Christian thought processes that actually divides partnership between men and women. Uh, And so he took me through all the stages of where we had walked and how we had grown out of that, how we forged partnership and were healed in spite of it. And it was just an amazing, amazing experience. I mean, it totally reconfigured my heart, my feelings, and our partnership in a deeper way. I mean, we had really worked at our partnership and been partners, but something was missing and the Lord was jealous to give it to us. And so that's how that happened for us. I mean, I got that healing in my heart. He got the healing in his. And we went to a new level of partnership where there's just not a, a that whatever barrier was left is just not there anymore. I really believe that united we stand, divided we fall as men and women. And I believe that the partnership between men and women, married couples especially, is there's a great war over it because the enemy knows how powerful that is. There's no more intimate relationship you have on earth than that. And when you forge that partnership and you break through into that, you're unstoppable. You're unstoppable. So, you know, I feel like we've come to a new place as a spiritual dad and mom and as a couple. And hopefully to prepare a way for a whole generation. You know, I think it does take a generation to break strongholds down and, and to have a new starting place for the next generation. We've given our kids a whole different starting place than we have. And we're so grateful to be able to do that. We know that there were forefathers before us that did that for us in ways that we don't really even know. We just know what we were supposed to do. When we were on our honeymoon, the Lord visited us in powerful ways. And one of the things he said to us is that we're in Abraham and Sarah. And we're like, awesome, that's great. And then you don't really think at that age what that was really. (laughs) What they had to go through to become Abraham and Sarah, to go through the change 
to have things withheld from them that they would they would come into in their in their golden years. And we kind of feel like we're there. That we're walking as Abraham and Sarah now. And it's all worth it. You know, whatever the Lord has you fight for in your life, make the fight for your heart central to it. Because that's that is the real treasure. Yeah, so, so this is Emmanuel Healy, and um, I guess one of the big points of the day for me as we think about apostolic mission is that we make sure that we don't skip over the healing of the broken heart to get people into mission. So that's just uh, something that the Holy Spirit seemed to emphasize as we prepared uh, for this day and, and this subject. But we do are glad to move on and talk more practically about uh, apostolic ministry and apostolic mission and how prophetic activity uh, interfaces with it. John 14 through 17, again, is laced with the apostles of Jesus, the first apostles of Jesus, right? Getting in touch with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit in those chapters is a spirit of revelation. And God wants to provide the apostolic mission with, with revelation regularly from the Holy Spirit so that we're on time and that we know that we're focusing on the right things and that we're in concert and we're in tune, attuned to the Holy Spirit. So the, the apostolic ministry needs this. Uh, it needs that prophetic Zip. It needs that prophetic, it's like eyes, I guess you could say, eyes and ears, so that we're not just rushing ahead in the mission blindly and deftly to get the work done, right? A lot of times apostolic leaders have a big vision uh, out in front of them. They see a long way out, and a lot of times they miss the short moment, in the moment stuff. And that's why the prophetic people are needed is to provide that intelligence, right? It's like in a, in a war, you got to have intelligence to war well. And apostolic leaders need that prophetic input. They get a certain kind themselves. They get a certain kind of prophetic input, but they need more. They need from other members of the body to uh, step up and to share the dreams and the visions and the wisdom and the revelation that God gives. And, uh, and these ministries, not only the apostles and prophets, but the evangelists, pastors, and teachers also, they, they work, they're supposed to work together as a team. And we need to get better at coordinating this. We need to get better at recognizing these gifts and getting experience together to uh, start to uh, work as a team. You know, a basketball team has five players, and basketball teams are a good uh, illustration of uh, apostolic, uh, or sorry, of um, the, the teamwork of, of, of this fivefold ministry. So let's, let's go ahead and uh, just open things up to questions that you may have, and we'll repeat the question for the recording. So just speak up. If you've got a question, let's do that for a minute. We'll take some time at the end. We've got an hour to go. We'll take some time to pray for a few people. Questions? Things that we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on? Yes, Bill? Why do you think apostles and prophets are foundational ministries and 
It's a great question. And it reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at the very end. He says, God has set in the church first apostles, secondarily prophets. Interesting, because he enumerates them as first and second. Then he says the rest. And he has a, he has a list of gifts that he's appointed in the church. And then he says this, uh, in essence, uh, be zealous for the, for the greater gifts. Be zealous for the greater gifts. And so in the context, this is something I submit to you as an interpretation of what Paul is saying. I think Paul was saying to the body at large, pray for the raising up of apostles and prophets, first and second, the greater gifts. Not greater in, in their importance, but great, or in their value, but greater in the sense that they are foundational to the release of the rest of the body into uh, their callings because they have these giftings that are catalytic and uh, create opportunity. They create open doors. They create space for other members of the body to function. So if we don't have Apostles and their giftedness, these men and women sent by God, ordained by God, sent by God into the church to be those pioneering types and to have a master plan. You know, Paul calls himself the master, a master builder, an architecton. They're architects of the body. And so they see the big picture. And that's why they're so vital is because they've got a scope of, uh, of vision that the whole body needs to have access to. And they've got the blueprints. So this is a part of their gifting. They are the master builders. And master builders make room and give reason for other builders to come alongside and get some great project done. Get it built, literally built. And so I think that's why you know apostles and prophets are distinguished by Paul both in... Uh, there, that passage in 1 Corinthians 12, as well as Ephesians 2, where he says they are the foundations. So the apostles and prophets are foundational. They've got a spiritual authority that comes with their office, that comes with their giftedness, that moves the heavens, it moves the earth, it moves people into place. And so when they're functioning well, then it creates a, a much better environment for everybody else. And that's why I think they're so foundational. Does that make sense? Carol. Okay, my question, sorry, not about apostles and prophets, but it was just about spiritual motherhood. Yeah. And can you clarify what that looks like? Can you give me something? Spiritual motherhood. Well, it looks like you being fully you with Jesus fully formed in you and giving your unique contribution to the body of Christ around you and bringing up younger ones and calling up your peers. It's about you coming to maturity. Spiritual motherhood is about you coming first to maturity and calling the community around you into the same. I think that's it. To encapsulate it, is that what you're thinking? Yeah. 
tego poziomu YouTube. Yeah. Did you have a final result of the issues that you had as women within the body of uh, the church? Yeah, we did. I mean, we we basically came out of the church staff where there was there was not anything negatively taught about women. There was just an absence of women, you know, being in ministry, being more active in ministry. Some of that was because we were a very young church and we were all raising our kids. I had five, so that's kind of a full-time job. But um, we we have begun our own church, and I was ordained as a pastor of that. And we function together as equally yoked in the ministry in that setting. And we feel a lot of freedom in that. We, we feel like we've come through it. And, and that the people around us are all, you know, on board with that. What advice would you give to somebody going through a similar situation? Well, it would depend on the situation. But I feel that the Bible verses that have been um, twisted need to be challenged and brought into a greater balance. N.T. Wright has the best stuff ever that we've seen on women in ministry, women in the church. His stuff, I'm like, I love this guy. Because he really gets it and he really empowers women. And he really refutes it from a scriptural point in ways that, that I can't even do it. You know, he's just right there on it with theology. So, um, yeah, I feel like just to shine the light on the fact that there's something that's restricting that person, if they're not seeing it, that this is this restricting you in a way that's not God. I mean, it certainly wasn't my case. It was man-made religious restrictions that were coming in. And, you know, I began to see through it in a few years, you know, two, three years in my class. And we started working it out on our own. And I feel like the body of Christ has been on a journey with it. And we've been on that journey. But we had to make our own break. Yeah, but not everybody's in that position to do their own church if they're working in a church structure. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because sometimes you just have to look for the church structure that will let you be who you're called to be. That really allows me to Terry, why don't you mention just a, a brief thing about the fully alive experience oh, yeah. you had? So in 1990, yes. Oh, is it going to Step behind the speaker. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you can see where All right. So um, in, this, in the midst of my wrestling for the truth about this, I, we were in Kansas City at the time. And in that setting, there's not anti-woman teaching. But there's just like a stampede of stallions, of male, I mean, just like, you know, all stallions. And you're like, where do I fit in all this, you know? I'm called to be a leader, too. 
and I've got five kids, and I don't know, what's all this about? So I asked the Lord for my own picture of what does it look like to be fully me, with Jesus fully formed in me, as a woman, as an individual, as a leader. And so he answered that with an angelic visitation. It was super powerful. And shall I share it? Yeah, just share the highlights of it. Okay. So you're going to write a book about it. So. I'm writing a book about it right now. So it happened in 1990. I was 36 years old. I'm 63 now, so maybe there's a significance that flip-flop that those years, those numbers. But uh, I really, when I had it, I felt like it needed to just work out in my life before I would write about it. So, um, as I asked the Lord this question over and over, this was how he answered. I woke up at like three in the morning and I'm hearing music in our room. I knew it was from heaven, never heard anything like it before. And these women started coming into the room and they were dancing, they all were obviously angelic, they had white outfits on, they had names on their outfit. Of whatever it was that they were offering me, they came bearing gifts. And they had a gift that they came, each one danced and gave, gave me their gift by just putting it into my heart. And it was all, I, I could read you the list of names, but it's long. There's like 30 of them that, that came in. And they each imparted their gift. And then I took something out from my heart, gave it to them. It was like a, an old rag, something. It was like a white elephant gift. That you, wanted, you, you wanted to get away, give away anyway. But it became irresistible when he was <coughs> something so much better. And it was all the fruits of the spirit. It was all the qualities of virtue and nobility qualities of relational integrity and meaning that were being offered as gifts, and each one of them was something the Lord would focus on one at a time, and as, as it came to the end of all of them giving me their gifts, all of those women stepped away, there was a hush in the room, and the final woman came in. She was powerful, I mean, fully alive was her name. And she had her head back laughing, and she was crushing a serpent under her feet. And I knew the Lord was saying, this is what it looks like for you to be fully alive. For me to live in you and you to live in me. You to fully be you, having Jesus fully formed in you. It looks like you with me and you. You're just like that. But she had no intimidation, and I knew that the crushing of the serpent under her feet had to do with the head of the serpent, the thinking of the serpent that has infected women in a particular way and has come against women. And she had overcome all of that. And it was by virtue within her that was fortified by the grace of God. And it was a picture of transformation and how the Lord brings about transformation. It's by grace. And we respond to his, we respond to his response. To his, he responded to my prayers, and I responded to his response. And it was an amazing thing that I've been living out, and now I'm writing about it, and hoping to have women's retreats and things for women, 
And then I want to broaden it and have one that, that all Christians can read about the process of transformation for men or women. So I've got a vision for where we're going with this. But, That's awesome. Yeah. Let me say a couple things. Okay. So, um, yeah, it was quite an experience. I, I woke up in the middle of it and I felt the presence of God in the room. And I think you were in the other room at that point. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> and you're like, uh, 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 you know, you couldn't even talk. It was amazing. Yeah, he got the little micro cassette. We had cassettes then. He got the micro cassette out and recorded the whole thing. Yeah, so. yeah, that was amazing. And we've been walking that out through the decades now. That was 1990. So, uh, you know, I think I think another thing I might say about Terry is um, uh, being a spiritual mom and and also the 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 struggle of her being in a context where there wasn't a real impetus for women to step forward and. And uh, even before that, some cultures that were anti-women being in leadership. I think this is a very important part of the Second Reformation is women coming into their place in the family of God. You know, when you think about uh, a natural family, uh, the leaders of a natural family are dad and mom, right? And I think for the church world, unfortunately, the spiritual families had a bunch of dads, you know, and not enough moms. And so we need the influence of women in the church because the church becomes kind of, I don't know, I don't know what to say about it. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yes, women give birth. We're wired for it. We birth things in spirit. We had a German pastor named Peter Dippel came through Kansas City at one time. He was obviously very in love with his wife who also had five children. And he said, I love it when my wife gets together with her lady friends and they pray and they pray and they pray because I know it brings forth life. I'm like, yes, that is what we do. That is what ladies do. They are on it and they will birth it. And, you know, it's a partnership that brings that about. But we have a very unique role that we have to be all in for that process. So just that's how we do. Yeah. We need uh, we need moms. We all need moms. Captain Hook needed a mom. Your mom was a Scottish lady. Yes, born that's true. not born here, but not she born was from here. Scottish. Yeah. Other questions? Get us in the right mood, we'll tell you everything we know. <laughs> in 45 minutes. Probably <laughs> how long it'll take. <laughs> Questions about apostolic ministry, the mission of the church, how the prophetic relates to it. Any outstanding questions at all? You came in here this morning going, I don't really like to hear about that, and didn't hear about it. Change the subject.
Hannah's asking about um, abiding in Christ and some of the ways, practical ways that we can do that and how we have learned to do that, what's helped us to do that. So we have a Bible app on our phones. You have the Bible app? It's amazing. What, what we can do with uh, mobile phones these days. So the Bible app on our phone, we, uh, we sit down in our chairs in our living room with our cups of coffee and used to be muffins. We don't eat muffins anymore. No, we do. Uh, but anyway. No carb thing. Yeah. But anyway, uh, we have our little breakfast and we put on our Bible app and we listen to the Bible together. And uh, we take it, you know, I think it's so important to read the Bible devotionally. We're not reading it, listening to it to get something to give to somebody else. We're listening to it like children, like this first time we've heard it. Like, Jesus, you're right here with us. Your word is being spoken to us through the Bible app. Thank you for that because I can hold my coffee at the same time and drink it while I'm listening. And just soak in the scriptures. and so this is something that we do every day now at this season of our lives. We didn't used to have the opportunity to do that when we had little children. We had to work it out in other ways to get our time in Scripture. But this has just been an amazing uh, season of our lives doing this. And so we fellowship. We also read Jesus Calling. Oh, this book, this devotional by Sarah Young, this lady gets it. She's, she's a herald of the Second Reformation. Um, Jesus Calling, if you haven't heard of it before, it's a very well-known devotional. And there's also an app for that, believe it or not. And uh, so we listen to, uh, or we read Jesus Calling, and we listen to the scripture, and then we share what stands out to us from our reading, and then we pray about it. And we pray for the day, and we commit our day to the Lord, and we also share any kind of uh, prophetic experiences that we've had, maybe a dream of the night, and we share that dream of the night, we record it, and we meditate on it, and so this has been a wonderful uh, way for us to abide in Christ, and I would say in the last five years that we have been experiencing the manifest presence of God uh, I don't. You can say it for how you experienced. I, for the last five years, I experienced the manifest presence of God, tangible presence of God. Every day, I do. I just, I feel God all around me, a lot. <laughs> so this inspires the abiding relationship. I think that we we should expect more interactivity uh, as we position ourselves this way. More interactivity uh, as we ask the Lord to help help us learn what it truly means to abide in Christ, to where it's second nature to us. It's second nature to us to be aware of the presence of God. It's second nature. That's a good analogy, second nature. You know, the new nature. It's second nature for us to to feel the presence of God. Second nature for us to hear the voice of God. Second nature for us to expect the Lord to uh, guide us and lead us into particular situations day by day, hour by hour. It's got to get to that point. And as I said before, 
what we're aiming for is relationship, not religion. And so, I, in the morning, every morning, I look up for my father's eyes, and I see his eyes sparkling as they look at me. And I live in that relational connection. It's seeking the face of God is about seeing that look that he has as he sees you. And I live in that knowledge of his favor throughout the day when I do that. I think also interactive gratitude is a great way to walk through your day and have a really quick way to reconnect because you can feel things crowding in around you and anxieties can come and you just get distracted, whatever. And if I start to feel that stressful sensation and realize I'm getting older with stress, I just stop and I take a moment to thank God for something. And listen for his response. And when I hear his response is when I get the connection. And I've been teaching people to do this. You know, we're teaching people that we fellowship with to do this, and I do it in my coaching practice as part of my life coaching. So I'm coaching a CEO right now of a business, very stressful job. He has been just shutting down. When he walks into the office, he just he said, I just shut down, and I'm just like, I can't do anything. He's just so stressed out at the moment. He gets bombarded. It's like way too much air traffic coming at him. And I said, you've got to live out of your relationship with God. And so I have had him practice this. He's a Christian man, and so he, he knows how to connect with God, but he just wasn't doing it in his workplace. So he practiced it as he was walking in the door, and he said, as I started to feel it coming on me, just as I walked in the door, and I had a vision, I, I chose to thank God in, a, in an instant. I saw giant waves coming to crash over me, and Jesus stood up and went, no. And he said, I was fine all day. <laughs> so it's, it's transforming people's lives. Just to practice gratitude with the extra feature of really hearing his voice responding to you. Because it's not a monologue then. You know he's with you when he speaks to you. Or he shows you a vision, whatever, however he speaks to you. I would say another really important key to this is, and you're talking about the face of God. You know, the, the Psalms talk often about God's face. This, this is a paradigm, and I'll just share it with you, a paradigm that helps me at least grasp some of this Second Reformation stuff. Is I think of God as a heavenly gem. Did I say this this morning? He's a heavenly gem that has infinite number of facets. This is the way God is in an analogy form. And so God wants to show a facet. He wants to show you a face. He wants to show you a facet of his nature for every situation that you're in. And he's multi-multifaceted. And so one of, the, one of the facets of God's nature is that he's the God of all of life. This is one of his faces. He shows up as the God of all of life. And this is what helps undermine Gnosticism in our spirituality. We've inherited quite a bit of Gnosticism 
unwittingly in the body of Christ from different revivalist movements and so forth. And it's basically human beings that are not comfortable being human beings. They feel like they're supposed to be angels instead of human beings. And so we have to get comfortable in our skin as human beings. And this is biblical spirituality. Uh, Gnosticism is, uh, is a fleshly, you know, natural counterfeit to spirituality. And all kinds of religions are, have Gnostic elements. And a lot of, a lot of the uh, deeper life, even, kinds of, of mysticism that's come into the church world has got Gnosticism in it. We need to be careful of this and learn how to weed it out. And one of the things that helps us weed it out is seeing God as the God of all of life. And so rather than thinking, oh, I shouldn't be uh, you know, cleaning my house right now, that's pretty unspiritual, I should be memorizing Ephesians. Just understand that God is with you as you clean the house. God doesn't leave you while you're doing your very human things. He loves this part. And, and I believe that, that what proves this theologically is that Jesus came un, you know, uncorrupted, you know, no sinful nature, born as a baby, a human baby into the world. That's how God came. He came as a human baby. And then he lived an ordinary life for 30 years. And he, he learned a trade. And he learned the Torah. And he didn't do any miracles. And he didn't preach any sermons. For 30 years. The this, this sinless son of God. Think about that. Why did he do that? And then only three and a half years of public ministry. Why did he do that? I think he did it primarily to encourage carpenters. And housewives. And engineers, right? And what other teachers and whatever plumbers, whatever <coughs> vocation there are, whatever vocations there are, that that we're not Gnostics. We are a part of a new creation that includes heaven and earth, and God has ordained these earthly activities. And so, so a part of. Uh, a part of abiding in Christ is, is acknowledging the Lord in all of our ways, like this proverb says. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. He delights in this. And you don't have to be uh, an itinerant Jewish preacher wearing sandals and a white robe to please God. You don't have to rove around the world uh, having big crusades, like an, a big healing evangelist. That's, not everybody's called to that. We have to broaden our understanding of spirituality and how God delights in the life that he's given us to live. Our friend Dallas Willard said this, uh, we shouldn't ask, what would Jesus do? He said, that's too hard to, for, to translate. He said, we should ask this question, what would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were me? That's a much better paradigm for trying to discern what pleases the Lord. Mm-hmm. I learned so much about fellowship with the Lord and raising five children. You know, Jesus said that if anyone would enter the kingdom, 
he must do so as a child. And when you live with them and you see things through their eyes, and you get into their, their mindset and their space, it helps you remember what's most important and what God said about who really enters the kingdom. It's when you lose your sophistication and your pride and you're very simple and you look into God's face, you smile. I mean, it's, it's the stuff that makes kids come alive that causes us to come alive. We're all still his kids. And I had, you know, super busy life, but in the midst of it, I would just have incredible times with the Lord. I remember one time walking down the grocery store aisle. I've got three kids with me, which is a disaster in the grocery store. <laughs> and I, only two of them fit in the cart. I don't even know where the groceries went. And the other one's walking with me, and he, of course, gets on something off the counter. I think it was a jar of pickles, and he breaks it on the floor. And it was just so funny to me because at the moment that happened, the Lord has given me a profound revelation. So I'm having a revelation with squirming kids in the cart, kid breaking pickles on the floor, store things, store clerk rushing up to clean it up, and I'm like, you are so funny, Lord, that you chose this moment to download something to me, you know? Because he is right where you are, and he's pleased with you right where you are. You don't have to be somewhere else to be in his will. All right, I, I think we should change gears. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of questions. Stephen, do you have any questions at all that you want us to address? Or Angela? His brain is... His brain is... Working. I just want to say I'm really appreciating all that Michael and Tammy are bringing in. I think really, you know, the context of subject today, we're being given an incredible word of wisdom. And I was beginning the meeting and nearly shared it, but didn't share it. I was reflecting on, uh, you know, as we've visited Kansas City over the years, it's a son and daughter live there, um, and we've, you know, tasted different things which have been happening and seen different things which have been happening there, I thought. Um, and then also understanding the principle of transference of anointing. So, you know, one, one thing which is on our heart is, is what something of what Michael and Terry are carrying is, if you say, transferred to us just by us being together in the same room and our attentions on the Lord. And, and I would say, have faith for that. So I was thinking, what is it which we're catching? And I think. What I believe we're catching, what I've observed you know, in, in the, sort of the different things we've seen in Kansas City, what you say is that hearts which have a genuine passion for God, and it flows you know, in, in different things, and I find it so significant that one of the, the focuses which Mike and Terry brought today, and I didn't you know, I wasn't anticipating this, because they've not primed us on this one so much, um, was this healing of the fractured heart. I've personally been thinking about the heart a lot, because you could say, I've known I've needed to do work in, in my own heart, and my own heart's got to track some places, and it still's got to track a lot of places. Um, 
but we're saying that in, in this whole thing, the human heart is so key and so precious. So I believe what we're receiving is an anointing for healing the heart, not only of believers, but of a nation. Of a nation. As, as we, you know, as the Ken movement is thinking about remissioning nations and starting a movement to remission a nation, um, this healing of the heart is, has to be of that similar magnitude. So maybe, you know, just bringing this thing together, I know it's a movement to pray with us, you, you could pray for yeah. this whole area that there would be a release of that on earth and the Lord's prophetic people and you know, so there isn't a how to, you know, ABC, we do it this way kind of thing coming out of today. Is that it's, it's kind of a word of wisdom, and then let's see how the Holy Spirit just moves on us, different settings. Because the inbreakings of the revelatory come at moments of His choosing, don't they? We just have to be ready to catch them and work with them, steward them, recognize them when other people are getting them, and say, okay, I think what you've got there is really something. It's just work it this way or if we put this together with that and something's really crystallizing here. So we, we're becoming wise to the prophetic processes but with the apostolic goal in view. So I think that's what I'm seeing coming out of today and I'm so thankful for how you've presented that for us. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, let's do a little praying. Um, about this and give you some, not just a prayer for today, but some tracks to run on in the future, okay? Because it doesn't always happen all at once. It doesn't always happen on demand. You know, it happens, you got to have a process with the Lord. Um, And so I want to recommend to you Psalm 139 as a psalm to spend a lot of time in. And read it like a little child. Uh, It's the psalm about where... David says that um, he was formed by God in his mother's womb. This isn't just a psalm about David. It's a psalm about every human being, not just about Christians. It's a psalm about every human being and, and how God was with, is with us as a human being. We don't become human beings without God as our creator. He's our creator. Satan doesn't create life. God created you in your mother's womb. And he was there. He was there before you knew him. Uh, He's the Emmanuel. He was there. And so David makes that very clear in the psalm in such amazing ways. And and when you first read it, you know, it's almost like it's so close. God's so close that it's a little intimidating almost. But David's not intimidated by God's closeness. He's liberated by it. He's saying, God, you've been with me everywhere I've been. Everywhere I go. You can't get away from God. Um, And so that's what this psalm is about. And then at the end of the psalm, there's a famous prayer. Search me, O God. You know this one, right? And know my heart. Verse 23, 24. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. and Lead me in the way everlasting. It's a a passage I memorized as a young Christian. And I prayed it many times. And and as a young Christian, I was very, very, uh, you might say, hyper- uh, what's the word? Hypervigilant. That was a problem in my life. I was hypervigilant. And um, 
So I would just like, God, search me, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts. Is there a wicked way in me? Lord, show me some sins to confess today. I remember praying that one time. Went into my dorm room as a college student. God, I'm sure I've sinned, but I'm not sure how. So show me how I did it. You know, I'm ready to confess. Right? So I'm doing this on my knees in my dorm room. And the, and the Holy Spirit says to me, turn on the radio. I'm like, shut up, Satan. I'm confessing my sins right now. And so as I'm praying, then I hear it again. Turn on the radio. I'm like, Satan, stop it. I am praying to God right now. So you're interrupting me. I'm going to confess my sins. It's a very important thing to do. Don't you know that? And I heard it a third time. Turn on the radio. I'm like, so now my curiosity. And I just, my, my clock radio was just above me. I was on my knees. I reach up, I turn the radio on. And my older brother is on the radio from Detroit. I'm in Ohio. He's on the radio being interviewed and giving his Christian testimony. I was like, oh my gosh, that's my brother. I run down the hallway. I grab about five guys. I say, you won't believe what happened. I was just confessing my sins. And God told me to turn on the radio. And my brother's on the radio. Come in and listen. They came in and they listened to his Christian testimony. And two of the guys came to Christ. (laughs) So... I'm so glad God interrupted my confession that day. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, search me, O oh God, know my heart. Boy, I took that to heart. I took it into heart in a way that wasn't very good, actually. Uh, but I want to tell you something about that passage. It's an amazing passage. And this fits so well with the spirit of the psalm. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be the literal Hebrew. A way of pain in me. That's what it says. See if there be a way of pain in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. This is, this is amazing. I found that out about 10 years ago. I'd read that psalm so many times. I'd never gotten the Hebrew uh, of, that, of that prayer. The way of pain. Oh. It broadens the playing field of what needs to happen in our hearts. Because the cross of Jesus not only ministers to the guilt and the shame of our sins, it also is a place to bring the pain of the injustices of life. The church has been really good about helping people get forgiveness for their sins. But we haven't been so good about Helping people deal with the pain, the ongoing pain of injustice is done against them. This is part of the heart healing. And not only is it the pain of injustice is done against us, it's also the pain of trauma that's not really anybody's fault. The pains of life that's not necessarily anybody's fault, like the death of a spouse or a child. We know a lot of people who've lost children through the years. Right? This is this is just traumatic. What do you do with that pain? Well you process it with Jesus. You process it vertically so that it doesn't come out sideways. So that's a little insight for that from that passage for you. And I just you know we could take time and try to do a lot of inner healing here today, but I don't think we have time for that, and I don't think it's the day for that, but I just, I want to give you a, a pathway 
to consider before the Lord, and that is to do this gratitude thing quite a bit. And another, there's several other things you can do. One is recall, remember special memories in your life. Take the time to remember wonderful memories that God has given you throughout your life. Before you were a Christian as well as after. Memories when maybe you felt God near you and he was with you, maybe not. Maybe it was just beauty that overwhelmed you of some kind. If you go back to those memories of when it's like this is the way everything is supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. Those gold, I call them golden memories. Recall your golden memories. Write them down. Make a list of them. Nickname them so that you can recall them. Like I do the cottage. Right? That's one of my golden memories is the cottage. That was our vacation place, my grandparents' cottage when I was a little boy, before I was a Christian. But the cottage was awesome. And it evokes all kinds of gratitude. It evokes all kinds of uh, um, feelings of, of peace, feelings of joy. And now, these days, even though I wasn't a Christian, I go back into those memories and I see the Lord there in those memories. Ask the Lord where he was in that golden memory because most likely he gave it to you as your creator. Even if he wasn't your savior yet, he gave it to you as your creator. Recall your golden memories. Be grateful. This is your home base for inner healing. The healing of your heart is these golden memories. You go back to them, you nickname them, you recall them, and then as you as you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just see if there's anything the Lord wants to heal a fissure in my heart. Camp around that golden memory and ask the Lord where He was in that memory. He'll show you. He'll show you where He was, what He was saying that you didn't see at the time, what what He was doing that you didn't see at the time, and He'll show you something by the Holy Spirit. And then say, okay, Lord, is there anything I haven't resolved? Is there any unresolved pain? Is there any way of pain in me? See if there be any way of pain in me. And you know, a lot of people, when they anticipate doing this, they think, oh, God's going to take me back to the big ones. He's going to take me back to really horrible things, you know? But it's really funny because it doesn't happen that way usually. It's, it surprises you where he takes you. He'll take you to something maybe just seemingly insignificant, but it affected you more than you realize. Yeah. And, and so ask the Lord then to show you where he was when you were vulnerable, when you were in some kind of a trauma, type A trauma, type B trauma, and ask Jesus where he was. And then here's the amazing thing that happens. Jesus shows up in people's memories. This is, this is Emmanuel. He was always there. You just didn't see him. You didn't hear him, but he was there. He may have been saying something that you couldn't hear, but he will show you retroactively where he was. This is a new, this is a new paradigm for evangelicals, right? It's called the Emmanuel process or Emmanuel healing. And so then ask the Lord to show you where you were wounded, where the pain came in, and what he was saying or doing. When he shows you where he was, 
like he did for me when my older brother shamed me, and I went back and did an Emmanuel healing on this, I saw the Lord in the picture. He was up in my favorite tree, looking at me and smiling at me. I and he had eye contact with me, and I could tell what he was thinking. And he was thinking, Michael, this is happening. This Satan's doing this, but it's not going to define your life. I will one day give you the ability to cry again, and it will become a part of your message. That's what I saw. I saw Emmanuel in the memory. When you see Emmanuel in your painful past, it changes your perspective on what happened. And suddenly, you're comforted in a way that only the Holy Spirit can comfort you. And he heals the fissure. Because what happens with our pains is that we react to them, and we become, we put on masks. We become false selves. We put on masks to hide our shame or our 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 pain uh, or our guilt. So this is how it happens. So we recommend this process to you. Terry, you got something to say? Yeah. And a resource that is really helpful for this is an manual journaling tool that helps you walk through it in a way that you write write things down. This, this can happen in a prayer context or in a journal context that is meant to be shared with others, but it's primarily you and your process. And the book is called Joyful Journey. And the couple is John and Sungshim. It's a Korean name. Lopnow. Lopnow. L-O-P-P-N-O-W. And they also have an online course to help you walk through this. Because as you're getting acquainted with it, it's a lot of information and they have a lot of stuff that's written. Okay, it's Joyful Journey, Joyful Journey mm -hmm, by John and Sung Shim Lopnow, L-O-P-P-N-O-W. And you can find it at this website, joystartshere.com. But it's a small book, it's not intimidating to read. And some of the bigger books are a little intimidating to read. So. All right, I think we should pray. Um, so put your stuff down. And um, we, we did this form of prayer yesterday. I won't go into uh, a lot of explanation about it. But this is, uh, this is an on-ramp to the Holy Spirit's uh, presence, the man of his presence. Uh, so we, we, I call it divine alignment. And I want to make sure that everybody is divinely aligned today before we leave, okay? This doesn't take a long time. So, <clears throat> sit real square in a chair. Terry, you model this for us so people can see how to do this. And then you put your arms out as far as they'll go. And don't try to make them match up. Just uh, close your eyes if you need to. And if you are misaligned, you will be able to see that you are. Uh, bend your elbows, look at your fingertips. And do it about four or five times. Do it again. And prove to yourself that you're misaligned if you are misaligned. If your fingertips match, you're not misaligned in your upper body, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but a lot of people are misaligned. Uh, yesterday I said about 20% of people in a group like this normally are. And um, that's about what it was yesterday. And we prayed for people. right? And some people are really misaligned. I've seen it up to like five inches. 
you know, off. And you do it every time, and it's the same thing every time. You prove it to yourself that you're misaligned. So who in the room is misaligned? Wave at us. Anybody? This lady back here? Somebody else? A lot of people aren't because they were present yesterday. You are? He's misaligned. A little bit? Okay. Anybody a little bit? Yeah, that much? Like a quarter of an inch? Yeah. That's, that counts. Do it every time. Do it again. Prove it to yourself. You're misaligned. See, people don't know that they're misaligned. They don't know how they got misaligned. There's a lot of reasons why you get misaligned. But the Lord cares about your alignment for some reason. I have a theory about that that I will share it just for time's sake. But we want to pray for people to be aligned. And then what will happen often is as we begin this kind of ministry, the presence of the Lord comes and people start feel the manifest presence of God and then it opens the door for miracles to happen sometimes. Uh, oftentimes. And we see I see thousands, I've seen thousands of people aligned like this and then and then seeing the Lord move on a whole crowd of people. Yesterday we didn't lay hands on Mike, we didn't lay hands on Diane. They just got healed in the presence of God. Right? So this can be a refreshing thing. It's, it's a kiss from the Lord. It's not a great miracle. It's just a, he just moves their bodies around and makes them better. And probably it probably does other things. I believe it does things in, in the invisible parts of us as well. That's what I think the Lord's told me, that this is more than just physical alignment. It's spiritual alignment, too. The alignment of your human being. So, uh, how, how far off are you? Uh, how far... Is it an inch? Half an inch. Is it about an inch? About an inch. Will you come on up here? Is that okay if you come up? Do you want to come up? Yeah. Hmm? No, the lady that's missing mine. Yeah. She has an injury of some kind. Right. 
ready?
the Lord ever healed you of anything before? No. I have a feeling when knees a few years ago when I didn't hear I have a crisis. Just go a little bit, but never mind. So we take authority over arthritis mm -hmm. in his joints now. You have it in your fingers as well? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Does it, it doesn't hurt? <laughs> does it hurt when you close your hands? Sometimes, yeah. Right now, today, does it hurt? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, good. All right, in Jesus' name. We take authority over this arthritis now. We command it to leave these joints, all this inflammation to go down. In Jesus' name. Stand up, Elaine, we'll help you. Okay? Come on, stand up. All right. I don't, don't use the cake yet. Just take a couple of steps and see if you notice it. Yeah. 
Are you guys noticing something? Something happening? Are you feeling something happening? Yeah, I'm really hot. Yeah, a lot of times people feel hot, heat, they feel cold, they feel wind. There's all kinds of different physical sensations. Good. I think you're you're done. <laughs> so you were off as well? Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you're done. Well done. <laughs> take, let's take a look. Just stand up and show us which, which arm is short. That one? Okay. Turn to face that one. All right, we're good. What's up? <laughs> <laughs>
hearts to us um, this afternoon for the shoulders. Like I was saying earlier, I believe it's been an incredible word of wisdom, and I believe there's incredible impartation to us in what you've been sharing so that we become carriers of what we've been hearing, that this Holy Spirit builds it further into us, it then gets released out to us in different ways and the movement starts. So let's just give thanks together. We did this yesterday. Let's just all stand up with loud voices. Let's just say thank you to our Heavenly Father. Lord, we just thank you. Thank you.